It's a classic Ameritrash game, basically. It was. It was totally Ameritrash. And, yeah. and uh, yeah, there was no eloquence. Well, I take that back. There was a couple of systems in there that when I look back, I think were actually neat. But there was also a ton of brute force. Mm-hmm. And um, I remember he said this line. He said, you think making a game with 400 cards is hard. Try making one with 55. Hi, everybody. This is Soren Johnson, and you're listening to Designer Notes, a podcast about why we make games. Today, we are talking to veteran game designer Tyler Sigmund. Tyler is a co-founder of Red Hook Studios and is best known for his work on the DS version of Age of Kings, Horde, and Darkest Dungeon. All right, so what I, what I usually start with is what's the, what's the first video game that you remember? Oh, um, Pong. Wow. Okay. Yeah. Well, I, I, <laughs> I mean, how old are you? I I'm 41. You're 41. Yeah. Right. I, I was born in 74, so I I feel like uh, it's weird. In some ways, it feels like the perfect age because sure. like for for gaming because you saw it all. It's not all pong. I remember playing Space Invaders in the arcade. Mm-hmm. You know, and and Atari, I was and then born in '76, but I did, I never saw pong. Okay. Yeah. Like I don't know how. Yeah, we had pong around the house. I don't so. Um, you know, I guess it doesn't go back quite as far as, spa- you know, Space War or whatever. Right? Right, like, sure. But, yeah, so I remember Pong and then probably... Did you did you like it a lot or, like, was yeah. it, just, it was just a thing around that, yeah? Yeah, well, I liked it. I mean, I think for whatever reason, we were attracted right away to just video games and, I mean, games of all sorts, but Pong and then, like, those handheld little LED... Mm. Re- recently bought, like, the football game where either you're the... T- or it's not... I don't think it's LED. It's just you're a little red dash. Yep. You know, and then you gotta, like, avoid the other red dashes and... Yeah, I had a baseball game like that. Those are yeah. completely forgotten. Like, people don't even think of those yeah. anymore because they're such one-offs, but... Yeah. yeah. It was weird. It's just, you know, score attack. You just sit there and practice and practice and practice and... Um, yeah, yeah, that's something that I miss sometimes about the old gaming is there weren't so many games you're being inundated with, or maybe, you know, you get the one new cartridge for the month and you just play it to death, you know? So you just play things to death and try to learn. Um, whereas now it's like, there's always, you're always one click away from uh, something new. (laughs) (laughs) What was like, what were the ones that stood out the most to you? Like, what was your favorite? Like growing up? Yeah. Um, you know, I, I always fall back on this, the Commodore era, Mm -hmm. I guess. I mean, yeah, we had Atari and I have fond memories of all that, but I think the games that were most influential. So my all-time favorite game is Sid Meier's Pirates. Um, that is um, my all-time favorite game. Oh, really? No <laughs> yes. kidding. Wow. Gosh, yeah, the blend of... You know, I, I realized how important the theme was to that, mm-hmm. of just feeling feeling like a pirate on the high seas and having your crazy stories where you go from a, a sloop to a war... You know, take down a war galleon, and, yep. you know, you're, you're fighting against time and crew, you know, morale and... And then just yeah, the the whole pirate romanticism. So I just loved that game. Um, Below the Root on Commodore mm. was also a favorite. It was I never have read the books by Zilpha Keeley Snyder, but it was just such a cool game with an immersive world. And they had this great mechanic. It was it was all based on these. Uh, the books are about people like living in trees. An adventure game, or yeah, it was a, it was like an adventure. Well, it was action adventure. It was like two D. Well, obviously, sorry, but I mean, you'd like, you walk, it was kind of a platformer in a way, like you're going, in a way it was a Metroid-like, because Hmm. 
the world was basically these giant trees that people live in. Okay. And so the world map was a set of maybe four of these giant trees. And each tree was many screens tall and, and you know, a few screens wide. And so you were essentially adventuring, platforming through and had to kind of discover things to open up the next uh-huh. area. So that was why it was kind of Metroid-like. But a really neat mechanic that is... That was before Metroid. Yeah. Oh, yeah. 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 It's it was. It's funny how many games it seems singular, like the singular invention. Like it's still you can find like Mm -hmm. games before it that did something like that. Basically, like it's almost like some of these ideas. It feels like they would have come up eventually. Yeah. Like they're inevitable, sort of. But and there's a little bit of the history rewriting of whatever was remembered, not necessarily what was first. Right. Um, So you know, Metroid, of course, was a giant game, and so oh, it's Metroid like. Um, But the neat thing about Blow the Root, well, one of them is. Uh, had this thing called a shuba, which is basically like a flying squirrel cape. Mm. Um, and so a big part of the game mechanics were like you're climbing up and you go out on like a tree branch and you jump off and extend your shuba and then glide. Mm-hmm. And then all your control is you're, you're kind of falling with gravity, but you can go, you can control left and right. So you'd have to like jump off branches and glide down to another tree. And it was just really neat. And then they had like uh, psionics and things you could sense intent in other people so sometimes you come across a stranger and then you could sense intent and they would be like oh they want they're racist they want to kill you there was like different races in wow. in the trees yeah it was really socially intense and mechanically interesting and i i have this dream of remaking it who made that game um so somehow was i mean Wyndham, i was a big conversation before but somehow that game never yeah I, me by uh, it was published by Wyndham hill yeah, okay. Which did like uh, Treasure Island and Alice in Wonderland, and yeah. and I remember, I still remember the programmer's name, Dale Disharoon. And I've go- <laughs> I've tried googling him, you know, I can't find any trace of this person. You know, uh, he's probably still out there, but sure, yeah. um, you know, didn't appear to have stayed in the game industry. Why do you remember is because like you like love the game so much, you like looked in the back and you're like, Who yeah. Is this guy? I, and recently, I was actually trying to find. I think I even sent. Yeah, no, I did send an email into the. The, um, the estate, because the author, Zilpha Keatley Snyder, died recently. So mm. I sent an email, because I'm legitimately interested in remaking the game at some point. Wow. I, it's, right. it, but it's very nostalgic, I guess. Sure. Um, yeah, so Pirates Blow the Root. Uh, tons of just Paul Reich's games, you know? Mm-hmm. Mail Order Monsters and Star Control. and um, But yeah, Archon, Mail Order Monsters on, on Commodore. So I've... I've been uh, rebuilding my Commodore collection because mm-hmm. I, I still have about half the games I had when I was younger. And I think my dad randomly in a garage sale sold half my stuff. Yeah. And then, you know, in the last couple of years, I've been eBaying a little more than I should have <laughs> building up. Uh, you know, I love I love those uh, little small kind of vinyl looking the EA jackets. Covers? Yeah, the EA. Yeah, yeah those were so yeah, I loved EA. EA games back then were just oh, amazing. Man. Like they were so far ahead of everyone. Yeah, it's it's kind of what's going on now in terms of uh, you know it could have been Devolver, like working with small indies, yep. and then each one has its own identity and promoting the creators, and it's really neat. Um, so those games, and then definitely Ultima Five. Okay. Um, I had a Commodore One Twenty Eight. Ultima Four. Ultima Four is great, but Ultima Five was more meaningful to me, mm-hmm. and um, not exactly sure why. Just you know, just for whatever reason. And I do remember I had it on Commodore 128. And the difference between 64 and 128 was that uh, there was better music or maybe full music. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I still, I love that theme. Like I can hear it, you know, mm-hmm. it's just really cool. So, uh, I mean, there's, there's tons more, you know, yeah. a lot of those classic RPGs. So you were, you were 
what do we call now a PC gamer? Yeah. At the time you weren't yeah. so I, much a console gamer. Exactly. I grew up, you know, grew up with like Atari and then NES, but between NES and basically Xbox, mm-hmm. uh, I I basically just yeah didn't do any console gaming at all. And PC has always been kind of my first love, I guess. Um, uh, that's pretty eerie. I had I'm basically exact same. Oh yeah, <laughs> <laughs> went straight from from NES to the Xbox, and that's and yeah, <laughs> yeah, that's cool. There's just so much yeah the heyday of PC gaming. I don't know. I still there was so much creativity in the 80s. On yeah, the Commodore and then later the Amiga. I don't know if you went to that, but like. Um, yeah, I mean, that was just... Because, like, you know, there weren't genres, and, like, mm-hmm. people didn't know what type of game you could make or couldn't make. Yeah. And, like... There was well, hybrid, weird hybrid games, yeah. interesting mechanics, and... Like, games like Alter Ego or Little Computer People are just, oh, like... Oh, yeah. <laughs> like, what in the world? What is this, right? Like, yeah. Um, yeah. Uh, yeah, it's kind of come full circle, I think, basically. Totally. I feel like we, we're living through such an interesting time that we can... I think what it is a little bit is uh, now because of, you know, obviously digital distribution and new funding methods, there's less gatekeepers between, you know, someone can have a weird creative vision and then make it. Mm-hmm. Whereas there was an in-between period that I think you had to go through several layers of gatekeepers. And at some point the weird, you know, just really weird ideas get filtered out mm-hmm. and it's beautiful now to be able to see strange stuff that no one would have said would work. And then it's amazing, you know, yeah, yeah. um, and I still, for whatever reason, I'm I'm more inspired by those classic games. Like I, one of the reasons I've been collecting them again is because I really like to just look over at the bookcase and see yeah. them. Mm-hmm. And then I, I think you know, it makes me think of the mechanics, or just makes me think of a way I felt playing it. Yeah. Uh, look through the manuals and sure. the maps and everything, and. Um, yeah. Well, I remember a lot of those games from this era. I, you know, some of them I got and played, and some of them I didn't. And those ones that I didn't play still have like a place in my head because I imagined what they were back then. Yes. Right. You know, um, and that's still like an interesting idea. Like it probably was completely different from what I thought it was. Yeah. But like it still was like, you know, interesting to think about. And like, you know, you just you go over those like magazine, like the magazines ads. They were so detailed back then. Right? Yeah. And you like look over it over and over again. Did you so did you did you think at all? Were you in any way trying to make games back then? Like do you, do you mm. program at all? I do some programming. Okay. I like to say I do just enough programming that then the programmers have to come fix it all. Sure. <laughs> and, you know, gameplay-related stuff. Uh, and I really do like to prototype and do some implementation in right. that regard, but I'm just I'm, – I'm poor at the actual, you know, memory management, all that stuff. I don't know what I'm doing. Right. Uh, untangling me- ne- nests of include files I, like, sure, throw yeah, up yeah. my hands. But I really Were like – I guess what I'm getting at is, like, were you were – you- like thinking at all like trying to program back then teaching yourself like yeah that phase yeah definitely on um i think on like you know timex sinclair my ti mm-hmm. and then on atari 400 mm-hmm. yeah we'd copy you know programs out of the magazines and then learn learn to, to do a bit of stuff and it's odd because yeah we started that really young like my brothers and i um but i never really thought of just it, it never just really went anywhere with me at that time it was mm-hmm. just something fun to do and i loved games and then started kind of doing maybe a little bit of game design, you know, playing D&D. Of course, you do run things or tweak the rules or whatever. Um, but I didn't really realize how much I wanted to design games till I think I was in university. Okay. Yeah. And then it started like... And it's funny because I was going to university for something totally different. And where, still did, where did you go to school? Uh, Cal Poly. Okay. Cal, yeah, which is just down the coast here. Mm-hmm. Um, and what were you going to school for? Uh, aerospace engineering, oh. or aeronautical specifically, because I liked airplanes more than space <laughs> spacecraft. Okay. 
And then I did that. You knew that, like, right, right? That's what you wanted to do? Like, yeah. school? I guess that's why you went to college. Yeah, totally. I All through high school, I knew exactly what I wanted to do. And I wanted to be an aerospace engineer. Well, I wanted to be a pilot, actually, in the military, mm-hmm. uh, in the Air Force. I wanted to fly F-16, specifically. <laughs> this was my dream. And I was going to go to the Air Force Academy. And Right. Did you play flight simulators, I assume? Yeah. Like, yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, Definitely. Why did you love planes so much? You know, I try to think of that. I... <laughs> I remember, I mean, my dad used to, I grew up in Boulder, Colorado, and my dad used to take me to um, the airport, some like the municipal airport, just sometimes to watch the planes take off and land. Maybe that, because my first memories just uh, of airplanes specifically was fifth grade, had to do a big, it seemed like a giant report at the time, and we get to choose their topics, and I chose airplanes and i basically just went through like effectively like one of those jane's books or something Mm -hmm. and then just presented like page after page of stats of airplanes (laughs) like it must have been the worst report ever (laughs) it's like you know the f-16 can carry these many missiles and fly this far and then next airplane the mig 27 can you know it it was just a regurgitation of stats Mm -hmm. but yeah for whatever reason and then um Top Gun had a actually Top Gun sadly had a huge influence. Sure. Right. Well, the romanticism and just watching the planes fly, I remember just being my mind was blown and it it just made me want to be around airplanes. Um yeah, cuz that would have been 80 would have been before I moved to California, so 85, 86 somewhere mm-hmm. in there. Yeah. And uh I didn't end up going in the military, which is actually I'm pretty glad. Mm-hmm. Um why not? Well, you know, I probably, because I graduated university in 96, so let's say I went, you know, I would have been in the military when we were in Iraq, and not to get too political, but I... Oh, I don't mean why <laughs> Why it's a good thing. Wait, I mean, yeah. like, why did you not go to the military? Oh, why sorry. Choose yeah. um, it didn't work out. I, I didn't get into the Air Force Academy at the time. I remember being crushed, and I wanted to go to, back to Boulder for school. It was expensive out-of-state tuition, because I was living in California, mm-hmm. so it's it's... Basically, I ended up at Cal Poly, which was like a low low on my list. Not because I didn't get admitted to other places, but financially and things. Mm-hmm. Ended up being the best school I could have gone to. Yeah. It was a great engineering education. One of the top aerospace programs in the country uh, was extremely inexpensive compared to, you know, a state system and in an amazing town. I just didn't know how lucky I was sure. until I was there. Yeah. Um, and while I was there, yeah, I just kind of fell in love with... So yeah, you're you're at Cal Poly doing what you thought you wanted to do. Yeah. But then you started getting more interested in the game design? You know, I, I yeah, I started making game stuff. I remember um having Warlords 2 scenario editor and mm-hmm. started doing, you know, pixel art and I did this huge War of the Ring map with total unit conversions and everything. And then I was Were doing you making this for friends or you uh, just, just you just wanted to make it? Yeah. Yeah, I wanted to make it. Um and I started doing some board game design mm-hmm. and stuff like that. And, you know, I still was very much into my program. That's the thing, the aerospace stuff. But all my free time, you know, I'd come home, I'd play games just nonstop. Why? You know. I mean, and why was it dominating your brain like that? I guess I just love games. I mean, that, it, yeah, it just, it's hard to explain. Just I love game playing games so much, and then you're thinking about it all the time, and I think it's just natural to. I think you ha- your mind has a way of kind of gravitating to what you truly like. Sure. And you know, long story short, on the aerospace stuff, I ended up doing it for eight years as an engineer, but I would come home and work on games at night, and and you know, eventually I had to face the realization that I actually liked, design, you know, games and the idea of designing games for a living more than I liked airplanes. Right. 
which was really weird because I had identified just as, you know, I thought for sure. It, I remember in college people would say, hey, the average person changes careers like three or four times. Right. And I just remember thinking, I'm going to be an aerospace engineer for 30 years. You know, I'm going to go work for Skunk Works, which I did. I'm going to retire there. And it's just so funny. I went to I went to Lockheed Skunk Works, which is my dream job. Yeah. And within like seven or nine months, I had changed companies to another dream job and whatever. But, you know, after a while of doing the games kind of moonlighting, then was what able you, to... What were you making? I was making... Um, do you know cheap ass games like James Ernest mm-hmm. and yep. so I was doing basically cheap ass style kind of knockoffs in a way uh, because I I didn't have I was working but I I didn't really have money at the time to there was no Kickstarter there was mm-hmm. so I found a way to basically get some game practice without risking a bunch of money which was this was 1999 mm-hmm. um, it was at the dawn of PDF commerce. Where, where the idea that you would pay money for a PDF file, this was just starting, right. you know. Um, I mean, PayPal was maybe around, but wasn't like, I remember there was like InstaBuy and something else. And this, this virtual, virtual goods was just a mind blowing concept. And so I made some non-collectible card games and some board games that I sold online via my website, and you Mithril Games was my company M Y T H R O L E, play on the, the you know Tolkien Mithril, and yeah, so I did my first published games were this trilogy of fun. I called it. It was Night of the Ill Tempered Squirrel, mm-hmm. which is a game about making the worst B movie you possibly can. It got inspired after watching Ed Wood, yeah. and then um, Witch Hunt, mm-hmm. which was I had I had actually interviewed at Hasbro for a job and visited Salem. Uh, Massachusetts oh. and went to the witch trial museum. Wow. And then, um, so you were thinking about like, yeah, it might be a fun career if you could well, do it. I definitely was, um, I wanted to publish games, but I didn't know if I could make a living. And I thought I would just do it on the side. Like, Oh, I love airplanes and then yeah. I'll publish games on the side. And yeah. so that's kind of what I was doing. And then what was the third game? Oh, shrimping, which mm-hmm. was, you're all shrimp boat captains in Louisiana Gulf or whatever. And you all need to compete to get the most shrimp. And that was like Forrest Gump inspired. And I put these out and I think it was like five bucks each or maybe 10 bucks for the three or something. Mm-hmm. And you know, it was a fantastic experience. It was, it, it, it had its commercial limits because you know, a PDF commerce, not only, not only people have to get their mind around paying for a PDF file, which was right. new, but then you have to print it out cut out the cards and yeah. assemble the game. Right. So, uh, you know, it, it was, uh, yeah. I mean, and how would people find out about your game? Uh, that's a good question. I mean, trying to do some marketing, I think maybe did some web ads. Mm-hmm. I was trying to, you know, go to conventions, just try to spread the word. It was forums, yeah. you know, posting on forums and things. And, uh, you know, the things that have gone on to be very successful PDF, of course, RPG supplements, you know, books, cause you, yeah. You don't have to, there's no DIY required. You know, the problem with buying a game with 100 cards, you've got to cut them all out. But the beauty is I got to make games. I got to get them out there and I didn't, I was able to do it for basically just sweat labor and a little bit of internet, you know, fees. Were you able to get some feedback on your games? Mm -hmm. How did that happen? Uh, I would go to conventions Mm -hmm. and play test. And then, of course, people could email in. but, you know, playtesting at conventions was the main way I remember. Like, I think each of them I would take to a couple conventions and play before um, 
before like releasing them. Mm-hmm. And at that time I was working. So after Skunk Works, I worked for Burt Rutan's company and he's the guy that did the Voyager that went around the world and then did the, uh, the won the X prize, you know, recently became like the, the vehicles they built became this Virgin Galactic stuff with, um, for the space tourism. And that was kind of my, a rare opportunity to work for this visionary. He's this amazing aircraft designer, but they opened a new plant in rural Colorado, Western Colorado and Montrose. And I moved out there and it was like, there was very little in the way of like gaming other than like the people I was working with. We had a little gaming group, but it wasn't like I could just find new place testers all the time. So traveling to conventions, it was really important. Yeah. yeah. And the games were clunky. Like if you play them now, they're, they're pretty clunky, but they were full of theme and vigor, which is funny because I consider myself more of a, a system designer. Mm-hmm. But when I look back on those, I still think the great part is I didn't know how not to do things. Yeah. So I would just do it, you know, sure. and now sometimes I think I sometimes over filter ideas. Cause I'm like, Oh, I can see where that's going. Um, and, and there was kind of a, a beauty to the naivete of just like, yeah. I'll just throw this in. And I yeah, remember, I, Oh, go ahead. I really uh, have similar feelings about like finding a challenge to do stuff. That's more thematic. Mm-hmm. And I don't think I used to be that way, uh-huh. but it's just like the more I've seen like ideas I thought were going to work, not work out. It's like, yeah, everything now goes through this, like, equation in my head of, like, is this actually a good idea or not? And, like, I think that there's a cost there at some point. Like, mm-hmm. I'm not trying enough bad ideas, you know? Yeah, it's it's interesting. And sometimes, like, I've been in the producer role a bunch on um, games, you know, in the last number of years. Mm-hmm. And I find sometimes that infects the process, too, because, you know, you start I start thinking of it like a producer as opposed to say like a pure creative. And it's one of the reasons I really love. Uh, so my partner at Red Hook, Chris mm-hmm. Brassi, he's a creative director and artist and we co-run the company. And the nice thing is, you know, he's, he's more of a free association, just crazy idea guy. Yeah. Um, and that's really helpful because sometimes I do pre-filter too much and then, you know, he'll come up with something and I'll be like, no, that's crazy. And then the next day I'll, I'll realize wait, I know how I could, you know, yeah. we could take that. And, and so it's nice to have kind of uh, we joke, like he's an idea factory. Um, and so, you know, that's a nice blend, but I find I used to be more just freak, like crazy like that. Oh, game about the witch trial game. About the, you know, and now I don't know, sometimes like the burden of responsibility can start pushing you out of, out of that. And I find for me, I forget that setting is very important. If I'm sitting in front of my computer and my email and my spreadsheets, you know, and then, Mm -hmm. then it's like, it's hard to think really creatively, but if I grab a notebook, Mm -hmm. you know, pen and paper and go to a coffee shop, then it starts to flow more or travel or whatever. Yeah. For me, it's cracking open like an old, like, uh, historical atlas. Oh yeah. Something, you know, like if obviously if I'm working on like a historical game, right? Like Mm -hmm. at that point, like, yeah, I'm totally out of it. And then I'd start like, Oh, this is a cool thing. And that's a cool thing. And like, yeah. Yeah. See something to like push you forward. Um, but so you, you actually interviewed Hasbro during this phase. This was, yeah. Okay. So I think I'd been an engineer about five years uh and, uh, what, what was that like? Um, well, it was soul crushing because I didn't get the job. I remember sure. that. Yeah, it was my first time I'd actually been interviewed for a game design job. I had started ma- trickling resumes out, mm-hmm. and uh, just no, you know, just couldn't get even looked at really. Yeah. Um, and then I remember getting a callback for this, and they flew me out, and I was just like, it's just like static entry level yeah. game designer. Whatever it was they call it. Or? Yeah, you know, I I don't even know if it was for their electronic toys or. 
gosh, I don't know. I was just so ecstatic about having the the chance, you know, and in retrospect, I'm glad I didn't get the job because I don't know that it would have been what I wanted to do. But, mm-hmm. um, but yeah, I went out and I remember, I don't remember who interviewed me, which is a bummer, but I, he, he had a great piece of wisdom, which I do remember. Mm-hmm. I, I brought some of my prototypes to show them the board games. I think it was for some of the board game stuff because they had, they were relaunching the Avalon Hill line. And so I think I was really excited about worming my way into that. But mm-hmm. I remember I brought one game that I'd been working on that was this big talisman style, like, you know, talisman, the board game. Yep. Um, it's called Mithril Heroes. And I still like to this day, I want to repurpose it. But it was just full of content. I mean, yep. it was like I was so proud. And I remember I was showing it to this guy during the interview and I was like, there's 384 cards, <laughs> you know. It's a good classic Ameritrash game. basically. It was. It was totally Ameritrash. And yep. And, uh, yeah, there was no eloquence. Well, I take that back. There was a couple of systems in there that when I look back, I think were actually neat, but there was also a ton of brute force. And, um, I remember he said this line, he said, you think making a game with 400 cards is hard. Try making one with 55. Mm-hmm. And that just really stuck with me that, you know, the, the constraint of saying we want to fit this in one deck, but it needs to be fun yeah. and it needs to be replayable and needs to be. You know, it was a really neat way of thinking about it because you can always brute force just more content, more yeah. stuff, more, but it can obfuscate, you know, really just even if the game is, is interesting without, and not to bash on this one too much, but it's been very successful. I think, you know, Munchkin. Munchkin is a brute force game of just yeah. endless funny content where the mechanics are just rough you know um (laughs) but it's awesome because you like the theme or every possible theme can be brought into it and it really um, commits to that that concept yeah and i would love to have had the success of munchkin so good on them (laughs) um but yeah, so so that just stuck to me with me that sometimes less is more and knowing what to leave out and and certainly constraints you know which we face of course video game wise in terms of resources but board i think that's a benefit of coming from board games too is you're always under these constraints of the physical components. Do you know where the constraint of micro games comes from? You know, like, like mm. I assume you must have played Love Letter, right? Uh, no, I haven't. You've never played Love Letter? No. That's Love Letter is amazing. Oh, really? Um, and Love Letter. Oh, Love Letter. Um, no, I haven't played it, but I've heard it's is it's amazing. It's amazing. Yeah. <laughs> so I don't know, and it's like fifteen cards. Yeah. Like that's all, and like. Of those cards, there's eight types. So, like mm-hmm. one of them, there's five of like whatever. But at any rate, it's it's like officially a, a micro game, a micro mm-hmm. game. Like that's a genre. And what what that came from though is that the idea is the game had to fit on two sheets of three by three cards, um, so you can't go more than eighteen. Oh and the idea behind this is there are these printing companies that are you know do these big runs of mm-hmm. cards for games, right? And then sometimes the number you know like. I, I don't know the technical, but like maybe they do, they do 10 at a time, right? Mm-hmm. Or something. And like sometimes at the very end of the run, there's going to be some extra sheets. Oh, yeah. So they're like, you can make this game if you can fit it on two <laughs> sheets, because that's what's going to be left over at the it's process. The waste. We're just going to be wasting these sheets. So if you can fit a game on just that, right. you know, on just those two sheets, you have, fine. It's basically free for us to print. Wow. Um, and like, so that's the constraint. And that's one of the games that came out of that. Oh, how cool. Probably the most successful one that came out of that yeah. sort of movement. Yeah. I have these strange gaps in my gaming. You know, sometimes I think, oh, I've, like, played not every game. But, you know, like, growing up playing every possible form of game I could or try to. And then there would be things like people would say, oh, you want to play Euchre? I'm like, I've never played Euchre in my life. <laughs> oh, yeah, yeah. Um, or, like, on Christmas 
on December 23rd, I just played Backgammon for the first time in my life. Mm, that's a good game. It's a really good game. I, I, I can barely even sense how much depth there is to it. Cause it yeah. but So there's these random gaps. Like of, Bridge. I've never played yeah, Bridge. Yeah, I've never played Bridge, yeah. but I, apparently it's like it in, a super deep game. I don't know. <laughs> it intimidates that shit out of me. Yeah. I Every once in a while, you know, like in the newspaper, you open the Bridge section, <laughs> and you try to just read the paragraph, uh-huh. and I just close it and and the idea of you know just everyone's grandmother playing bridge it's there's a whole nomenclature that um surprised there's not like a hipster bridge movement in like the game oh yeah imagine it's just just because cribbage kind of was coming back it seems like i knew a lot of younger people that were playing cribbage and um but it was hard for me to like play those when you know i discovered like settlers Catan and carcassonne and euro games and it's like well yeah it's funny when so you said you just you just learned Back wait, did you mm-hmm. say backgammon or cribbage? You said backgammon. Backgammon. Okay, yeah. cool. Um, yeah, I was amazed when I first learned backgammon a couple years ago because I'm like, this is so much better than chess. Like, I don't know. Like, I don't know if you share those feelings or not, but like, um, from at least from like a aesthetic point, I mean, chess is mm. a beautiful game, right? Mm-hmm. But it's also there's no hidden it's no hidden information. Right. There's no like luck. Yeah. There's like it's it is what it is, right? And like backgammon is also this like you know classic game that's just mm-hmm. been around for thousands of years then i and like having you know having dice involvement it, like it felt like more of a like a more of a contemporary game mm-hmm. than chess does to me oh uh, interesting yeah and i was i was kind of fascinated too with the wagering mechanic that you can kind of mm. i forgot what they call it but the doubling you, cube yeah and then you can basically yeah. uh, raise the stakes mm. at some point if you think you're in a good spot and then the, the getting gammoned and yeah. Double gammoned or something, you know. Um, I could see, yeah, it just adds a whole nother. Yeah, and has some weird, crazy comeback mechanics too. Like because the closer you come to winning, the, also the more danger you are having your pieces sent out. Oh, right. Back, right. So anyway, <laughs> backgammon. We need to talk about that. That's fascinating. <laughs> I'll have to play it again. It's, it, it. But yeah, I guess there is the rolling, and so there's a chance you can. Go on a go on a spree, and that always feels good. You know, yeah. I think where, um, I mean, I, if there's dice involved, I feel like you have to play a little more intuitively, mm-hmm. right? And that to me, that's dividing line. Like, it's fine to have games that are just like this is like an intense logic contest, right? And that's yeah. that's go and chess, and that's it's like fine. a true brain weightlifting contest, right? Right. But I mean, like, I don't feel like those are the type of games I'd want to make, mm. right? You know, whereas backgammon actually feels like the type of game I want to make, where you're mm-hmm. like. I got these choices. I'm not sure what's going to happen. I have to just kind of weigh them in my head. Mm-hmm. I mean, that's that's the core basis of like mm-hmm. what I see game design as, right? And so, yeah, you know, I can relate to backgammon a lot a lot easier. Um, so, so your favorite game was uh, Pirates, yeah. And then you got to work with, with I got to work with God. Sid, it's amazing. Yeah. I, well, this is so. This is um, when I interviewed for Axis. Um, you know, I sat down with Sid for you know 20 minutes or whatever. And he asked me, like, what was my favorite game? Um, and uh, <laughs> You're like, oh, no. He's well, I, I was afraid to say like... – I didn't say Pirates because it just it felt just too awkward. <laughs> Although I'm sure I mentioned that I like Pirates. What I said instead was uh, Semi Seas of Gold. Oh, okay. Uh, which is also a game that just blew my mind at, at that age. Um, and then he was like, oh, I love Semi And he's like, actually, pi- you know, Semi Seas of Gold is the reason I made Pirates. Oh, no kidding. And I was like, ah. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> it's so obvious. Like, right? well, well played. Oh, jeez. Yes, Sid is. Uh, it's funny. I don't get very fanboyish, but you know, Sid is my favorite designer. He's had the most impact, and he's also like probably, probably, really, maybe, definitely the person I'd most like to meet in the industry. Mm-hmm. But you know, I never, 
really wanted to just go up and like shake his hand, you yeah. know, but I would kill to have a half hour conversation with the guy. Well, I'm glad I got to work with him because, because uh, I mean, he is, um, he's personable, but I mean, he is a little on the shyer side, mm-hmm. right? Like he doesn't necessarily like going to a lot of conventions and yeah, kind yeah. of like, you know, you know, like kind of meeting people randomly as it goes. Um, <laughs> so like, you know, you kind of almost have to like find a way to work with them to kind of mm-hmm. get to get to, to probably better. see the real, yeah, the relaxed and yeah. authentic. And, and also, I'd say like when I say Pirates is my favorite game, it's hard for me to like really categorize that. But I, the way I'd say more definitively is I feel like compared to other games of the time, mm-hmm. Pirates is the one that most outclasses everything else. Mm-hmm. Like like compared to the other games that are coming out in '86 mm-hmm. or whenever it was. I mean, Pirates was just it was just like another. Yeah. There was nothing like it. I mean. It was just leaps and bounds ahead of everyone else. You know? the, the hybrid nature was really inspiring, and just how each piece was was each piece was a different experience. But you're having one total. It all fit together. Yeah, it's fascinating, and I I feel. Uh, I mean, the approach to narrative was was fascinating. Yeah. Like, um, the time periods, you know, the, the the fact that you're playing different time periods of these massively different challenges, and you can kind of make it harder, easier on yourself, depending and and just the. Yeah, infinitely replayable, and just you create your own emergent narrative of just the story of your pirate, and yeah, it's incredible. Yeah, good game. <laughs> um, okay, so your your interview has really didn't get a job. <laughs> You're still still an engineer. Yeah, I assume you just keep making you keep making your games. Yeah, and uh, so what happens next? Oh gosh. Um, Oh, I remember I got a I got a phone interview from Microsoft. Okay. Um, for the this is just a funny story because I still never I have never figured this out to the day. Mm-hmm. Um, but I got interviewed for the flight simulator group at, at Microsoft. Okay. And they did a phone interview. And I was like, I'm gonna crush this. Like, I'm a, I'm a pilot and an aerospace right. aeronautical yeah. engineer, and like I've games. Like, yeah, and I published some games. Like, this is my moment. Yeah. And I remember having this phone interview with like the first level of screener who uh-huh. like they just ask you like this this series of questions, and you know, it was like, you could tell it wasn't like, I don't know. It just didn't feel like I was crushing it. And and she gets this question. She said, let's say you work at a stapler factory. And I remember this question of the day because it haunts me. And, you know, you need to make sure that staplers are good. Like, you know, you're, you're kind of quality control of staplers. Like, what would you do? And I worked in a manufacturing, you know, I was like, well, you know, it's probably impractical to test every single stapler that comes off the line if we're making tons and tons of staplers for the whole population, you know, whatever. Um, so, you know, you got to test, you got to do some random sampling, you know, where you get the stapler and, you know, whatever. I can't remember what my answer was along those lines. I remember there's a pause and then she says, okay, um, you know, is there anything else you can think of? <laughs> Jeez. And I'm just like, uh, my game career is being derailed because I don't know how to test the stapler, you know. And no, I didn't get a second call, uh, you know. I just what is that? that's the open-ended question, but there's a right answer to it. Like, I, yeah, I, and she was like trying to give me every chance, and like to this day, I have no idea how I should have answered the question. Um, maybe you know, if a listener has a better answer, I would like to know. Um, you know, I'm wow, just Microsoft. Saying, I, I I have interviewed <laughs> three times at Microsoft and got zero job offers. <laughs> they have their own interview like oh, yeah. system like they have this full belief in the way they do things and i don't know it's whatever. you know i just thought like <laughs> i have every qualification possible for this flight sim group you know as a game and anyway um so the i guess the long story short is yeah i kept making these games um 
I went to, I moved to Bellingham, Washington for work as a contract engineer and was doing aerospace stuff and fell in love with the area. And I kept sending resumes out and trying to, mm-hmm. you know, and I just, it felt like I realized I'm not getting anywhere. You know, I'm, I can keep making some of these games. I don't have money right now funding, you know, I mean, I was doing okay eating and had a roof and a house, but just going to like risk $20,000 in printing a board game or something wasn't feasible. Yeah. Um, and so nowadays, I really nowadays you would have been doing some sort of Kickstarter, Kickstarter right? yeah, like if it yeah. existed back then. Right? And I think it was smart because I think it was GMT Games and then Columbia Games started doing their effectively their the five hundred thing, yeah, right, yeah, which is really smart in retrospect mm-hmm. that you know yeah. to take the risk out. Um, so what happened is I I realized I need to make a change mm-hmm. and I'm not making it organically. So I have I have a couple choices. I I started thinking about going back to school to get my MBA. Mm-hmm. Um, and then I was like, or I want to become a screenwriter. So I was doing some some shorts. I was writing short wow. stories and things too and had a couple published. Uh-huh. And I was I was really interested in that. Or I was like, I need to go get a programming. I, I need to bone up on my programming. Like I know some from my engineering education, but right. I need to properly learn, you know, uh, programming. And that'll be my entry point. Because, uh-huh. you know, I'm technical and I'm an engineer. I can do it. We, I mean, um, so I guess you must have just been also just generally unsatisfied with being an engineer. Yes. Yeah, so what happened is... I was not creatively stimulated at all. Sure. That's that's a short answer. Is like airplanes are awesome. But, um, yeah. Being in ma- heavy manufacturing, things move so slow. You're not mm-hmm. surrounded by creative people. Uh, I was just always the weird. I was always the weird engineer that's uh-huh. like doing games and writing stories about zombies at home. <laughs> and then it's it's so funny because like when I got my first job as, as an game designer, I was at lunch. It was one of the first like month or two I was there, and I remember being at lunch. And one of the other people in the studio said, "You're really normal." <laughs> so I was, I was, I was the weird engineer, and I went as a game designer, and I was, I was like no. the no, I was the most plain, normal person in the company, and that crushed me. Wow. And I realized I'd been in this corporate kind of America that it just was soul crushing. So yeah, wow. it's all um, relative. Jeez. No, I yeah, it's hilarious, and and of course I opened up more, but I had been in a workplace where it's like. You know, you can't have action figures on your desk and whatever. And I, I was always pretty funny and, and silly, but you know, it's a very conservative workplace. And then you go to the game industry; it's like people are, yeah, the ridiculous conversations. They're talking about ninjas and zombies at lunch, and you know, action figures and people drink on Fridays. You know, it was just like so. At first, that first month, I was so terrified of like getting fired or something. I was just like extremely like quiet and mm-hmm. and so then i started loosening up because i mean my personality is a little more colorful i like to think than they gave me credit for but um wait so i think we skipped ahead where, where yeah. are you working at this point so, uh so you see you've had all these different things you wanted to do yeah so you um me out to where um okay so this is what happened is i i got accepted uh i got accepted to um an mba program that purdue university ran in germany it was this international, you go to Germany and study for a year, you get a Purdue MBA, okay. and they offered me a full scholarship. And wait, why did you want an MBA? Uh, I was starting to get the entrepreneurship bug. Okay. And, you know, I was thinking maybe I'll go be a consultant, and that'll stimulate me creatively and technically. Like, I was starting to kind of give up on the idea of being, like, a designer by profession. I knew I could always keep, because I, I, you know, couldn't get my resumes looked at. I was yeah. getting pretty dejected. So I had I had these three different plans basically, sure. and whichever one grabbed traction first, yeah. I was figured maybe that's my calling. I don't know. Okay. Um, I got offered a full scholarship to go to Germany, but it was like offered in May, and they were going to start in July. And I had like 
a house and a wife and dogs and cats. And I was like, I can't work this that fast. Yeah. And I didn't, you know, it was going to still cost to live over there. So I remember writing back and saying, I can't do it this year. I want to reapply next year. Please, you know, take this as like serious interest. I just can't switch my life in two months to be able to do it. Yeah. Um, so then I decided to, I was, Bellingham is just south of the border yep. of Canada. And uh, I hope this isn't too long-winded or isn't boring people to death. Okay. Um, Vancouver Film School was offering classes in screenwriting. Mm-hmm. And they had just that summer, the summer of 2004, for the first time were offering a game design class. Okay. Um, and I decided, screw it. Let's do this. You know, maybe I'll do some programming in the fall. But right mm-hmm. now I'm going to go take a screenwriting course and a game, a game design course. Mm-hmm. And so I would leave work at like, I don't know, 4 p.m., 4.30. Mm-hmm. So I'd go to work, work all day, leave, drive up to Vancouver, which is about an hour and a half away, um, get there for the 6.30 class, uh, do the 6.30 to 9.30 class, then drive home, get home at like 11 or 11.30, you know, rinse, repeat. And man, I was just incredibly happy. Like all of a sudden, it was the first time I, all of my game design had been done in a vacuum of me alone in a room. And suddenly I was going to classes and, you know, breaking scene by scene down in Casablanca mm-hmm. of like, why did this narratively work? And, you know, and then the game design class, you know, and talking about games with other people and actually breaking them down. And I just, it was just like a, it was just a huge, I don't even know how to describe it, Just so positive. Like it yeah. was just great. I felt creatively just launched and, um, Long story short is uh, one of the guys that taught the game design class was um, Trent Ward, and he was the design director at Backbone Entertainment in Vancouver. Mm -hmm. And at the end of that summer, he hired me. And, you know, I I couldn't believe it. Like, at the end of the summer, I tried to work up the courage, and I was like, hey, Trent, you know, like, Mm -hmm. you know, my resume had been rejected a million times by everyone. And, you know, I handed it to him, and he's just like, this is a great resume. You already have games you've made. You've got experience. Like, we're hiring yeah. And he hired me. And so, you know, that taught me the lesson of what, you know, one of my biggest mistakes being young was I never went to game developers conference. Mm. I never spared the money to fly out and meet people. And I think that networking is so important and still is, you sure. know, not, not in a nepotism way, just as a meeting people, mm-hmm. you know, when resumes come in and they're just one of a hundred, you know, versus, Hey, like here's a referral or here's someone that, yeah. um, so yeah, I, I, Man, I was excited. So the that all those other plans went away, and I I, I got a job as a full time game designer in in September two thousand four. Wow, cool. Yeah. So did you guys you guys moved to Vancouver? And no, I was... commuted for five years across the border. Oh, wow. Yeah, nice. it was um, it was, yeah, it was insane. I, I the first few years I was doing like four to five days a week, and so I'd get up like seven a.m., leave my house at eight, get to work at ten. Um, often work overtime and late, yeah. you know, get home, pet the dogs, hug the wife, yeah. um, go to bed, rinse, repeat. But you know what? I was, I've never, I don't know if, like, I've never been happier as like that moment. I was fulfilling my dream. And, mm-hmm. you know, one thing I always, uh, I have plenty of faults, but I think like when people talk about something they want to do and, oh, I want to be a writer. I want to be, and you say, well, what do you do? Oh, I go out all the time and, you know, will, but one day I'm going to write a book. It's like. I wanted to be a game designer so bad that I was willing to commute four hours a day to do it. Yeah. Right. Now, eventually that almost killed me and I can't keep doing that now, sure. but man, it was, it was exciting. I remember, um, 
being, you know, one of the first days, it's like they, or right before I started work, actually, I went up to sign the contract and my producer, Lord Clay, she handed me a DS in Advance Wars and is like, go play this. You know, this is like, this is work. Go, go play Advance Wars. And I remember just thinking like, I need to play this on like off hours or, and then it dawned on me, holy crap, I'm getting paid Mm -hmm. to do this. And it just, I don't know. Yeah. I'm still grateful to this day and, you know, for getting the chance. Cool. So was that was for Age of Empires, right? Yeah. And that was that your first project? That was my first video game project. Well, that's that's a great project to start with. Yeah, I I I was lucky. I mean it was yeah, it was cast right in as lead designer of, of Age of Empires. Now, you know, I had done some board games and things, but uh gosh, I lucked out. Right. You know, I think they said, Well, this guy's board gamey. Yeah. And sure. this is essentially a turn it's a turn based conversion. Yeah. And um there was it's funny at the time because uh Engage was getting popular. Mm. Nokia was a very big client um, for Backbone, which had been called Digital Eclipse. And there was a lot of money flowing in from Nokia, big, big budgets. Mm-hmm. And so a lot of the focus of the company was like, oh, we got to do this stuff. And Age of Empires was kind of like one of these projects that was like part of, I mean, it's such an amazing IP, but I think the DS version of Age of Empires didn't have a lot of high expectations. Yeah. It wasn't super highly funded. I mean, it was adequate for sure, but it was... It, it wasn't like going to be the flagpole title for the studio or anyone really. Right. Um, I think it was just like, huh, I wonder if this will work. And, you know, I was kind of thrown in the corner and I just started writing a design document, like an instruction manual. Cause I had no idea what I was doing other than like, I'd never professionally. So I didn't know what was right. I had this vision in my head that there's one right way to do it. And someone will teach me and everyone was busy. And so I was just like, work on it. I remember being terrified that, you know, one day they're going to come look at my work and be like, you're doing it all wrong. You're fired, you know, and um, it was such a fun project. I mean, it's still one of the favorite games I've worked on. It was, you know, the mecha- it was so interesting mechanically to convert things over. And historically, it was just like being a pig and slop. I mean, getting to go to the library and check out books and read about, you know, Richard the Lionheart. And because we had like five campaigns, so I did all the research and Wikipedia was just kind of around and I spent a lot of time reading and going to Wikipedia and doing the mechanics and paper prototyping. And, um, it was, it was so much fun, but I remember also just being incredibly nervous cause I'm like, Oh my God, I don't, you know, this is my first product and I'm, I'm the lead designer and, sure. um, but it turned out okay. Yeah. Was it just called age of empires DS? Uh, age called? of empires, age of Kings DS. <laughs> cause it was the second one, you know, like yeah, the, right. the medieval, right. Medieval time period one. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, so they put me on that, and you know the the direction was just, uh, you know, Age of Kings, but Advance Wars, yeah. And then on this new platform, because the DS was, you know, just uh, I don't think it was out yet. I think it was still dev kits that we had. It's oh really okay. Um, so you didn't have like the example of Advance Wars DS to look. At uh, right, there was adva- yes, correct. It was Advance Wars uh, GBA, right. And then you know there there was some teasing of Advance Wars Dual Strike, sure, uh, but it wasn't out yet. And yeah, so that was that was pretty fun. So I kind of buried myself in essentially creating, you know, the GDD. I just kind of approached it like a, you know, mix of board game instruction manual, you know, plus, of course, programming Mm -hmm. spec. And having been an engineer, um, I'd done a lot of technical writing. So I think that helped in that case. Like, that was still... Like for that game, basically, I made a giant monolithic game design document. It was still that kind of age, right. and it's funny because I, for different projects, I've approached that completely differently. But it, it worked out well for Age of Empires because I was the only designer on the game for 
for a while. Um, actually, um, my coworker, Eric Emery, who was um, the co-designer of the game, um, ended up coming on and he ended up handling like a lot of the levels. But uh, anyway, at that moment, like when it all started for a while, it was just me. So I had this monolithic document and I didn't know what I was doing in the sense of, you know, I was really, I just kept thinking there must be like a procedure. I've just gone to this professional company. You know, there must be procedures for all this. Yep, yep. And I was just terrified of doing it wrong. Um, but they kind of just left me alone and they were so busy in the other projects. Um, and later I found out that the design director, you know, he would check in on stuff and he's like looking at what I was doing, thought it was great. And right. so would go back to the other projects. Um, I just didn't know that at the time. So I was like, getting crazy <laughs> nervous. You were in a nice state of paranoia. Basically. Yeah. You know, just trying to apply my engineering knowledge, my board game knowledge and hoping it would work out. And I remember, you know, at some point through the project, um, one of the programmers, Pierre Tardif, who actually uh, is working on Darkest Dungeon, I think he said, he came over and he's not a guy of a lot of words, you know, and he, and he said, you know, this design document is the best one I've seen or something like that. And I was like, oh, okay, phew. Because <laughs> what he liked is it was specific. Uh -huh. You know, there was di there were diagrams of exactly how something should be implemented. And because I was thinking like an engineer. Uh -huh. Were you and, writing like pseudocodes yeah. for like the combat system? Yes, exactly. Yeah, this is exactly how these calculations should be. Um, you know, this here's a diagram of kind of how this combat ability would work, you know, and things like that. So I think it was great. You know, they were able to take that and... So was there, the the monolithic GDD worked for that game, even though for other games I would caution people against it sometimes. Um, but how much of it was right the first time? That's a good question. Um, I don't know. I mean, th th there was so much to create, and and at the time there was just me, so it was like I was just blitzing through core systems as well as campaign overviews. And then, you know, I did, I, I ended up using like basically MS paint to paint every level, just like the diagram. Okay. Like start here. This is the objective. There's a forest here. There's, mm. um, and then, but I'm a pretty, I'm a pretty poor level designer and it's something that's definitely outside my realm of comfort. And so yeah. the beauty was, but I could look at it, you know, the fun. So the part I enjoyed about the campaigns were researching each hero chronologically trying to look at their life and break it into every campaign was either five or six missions. How many heroes were there? There was five, I think. Okay. So that yeah. was what the campaign was. You played through the life of like five heroes. Uh, the campaign was, there was a campaign for each, each hero. Sure, okay. And then you play through that, you know, seminal events of that heroes. Was it like Joan of Arc? Saladin? Yeah. Joan of Arc was the start. Um, yeah. So it was Joan of Arc, uh, Richard, the Lionheart, yeah. Saladin, um, Minamoto, uh, now I'm forgetting his name, a Japanese hero, mm -hmm. um, Genghis Khan. Okay. Yeah, that was the... So it went... I think it went um, Joan of Arc, Minamoto, Genghis Khan, Saladin, Richard the Lionheart. Mm -hmm. And that, that was in roughly increasing level of difficulties. And so the right. tutorial campaign was Joan of Arc. Um, and it was so much fun to look and, and essentially read the history first... And then try to break that down into five. How wh where should these five or six missions take place? And I think the the fun part about that was also not that some of them were used in um, Age of Kings itself, mm -hmm. but really we approached it completely freshly. And I don't think there was recycled content. Like I think there was a little bit of Saladin, or yeah, I, I'm trying to remember. So 
and then sketching out, you know, kind of what the layout of those missions would be. But then the really critical part, you know, Eric Emery, who was the des- other designer that came on board, he was really good at level designs and, you know, he's kind of an artist background and lots of game design. And so like he, he could go in there and actually like create the levels, paint the levels. And then, but I, I have trouble with that kind of stuff of like, I'm more of a systems, you know, the systems level and, and things like that. And so, yeah, that was fun. And I don't know. I'm trying to remember uh, how much of the, Oh, so you're asking how much changed. Yeah. I don't know. There was, there was so much, yeah, that's where I was going. There was so much content to make, that I didn't feel like there was tons and tons of time to iterate on things. Um, but, you know, we did, I made a paper prototype early while the programs were still just building the, you know, essentially building the infrastructure um, and used the paper prototype to try to just get an idea of how the economy would work and how that it was really clumsy and very slow, but it did help give an idea of just even what the game would play like. Mm. Um, and because the town kind of a neat little innovation for the grid-based combat there was you'd have a town center and then essentially instead of like in the RTS, you can go out and like place buildings wherever you want. Every town could just consist of the town center and then town buildings in the cardinal directions. Okay. So every town could have four, four buildings. Six. And then I think eventually you could build things in the corners to help protect it or something, if I remember correctly. But um, so, you know, it was a fun simplification that, to make it meet there. I think a lot of this stuff actually didn't change dramatically. You know, the things of course change are just like coming out new combat abilities and, and tweaking that sort of stuff. But I don't, I don't remember lots of, I don't remember lots of dead ends where we say we went down a direction and then stopped and realized it didn't work and started anew. I think it was really just kind of everything being built up in parallel. And another thing that was terrifying in retrospect and kind of terrifying at the time is I don't think we really even had a working save system until like, essentially feature complete and so and some of those missions are yeah this is not i mean (laughs) (laughs) not a great it was a small team that was Uh kind of you know bootstrapped and not a Mm -hmm. giant budget and and that's not to take anything away from the team members because everyone did a a bang-up job it was just kind of you know it would sometimes be working the not and i and some of those maps take hours to play Mm -hmm. and so that's one of the things i remember from the game was that it was like these scenarios are really long Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. (laughs) so there's a few slogs like there's i think there's one like bridge mission in the japanese campaign that just can just stalemate down and can take hours you know just that one map and you know some you can keep making more units right so it can just keep yeah, and exactly. There, there. I think there was a population cap, but you know. Um, so I think the reason it all took so long is I didn't really didn't have an edict or or even my own direction of I want to keep these snappy. I want each mission to play in thirty minutes. Like that was never something that occurred during you think the. Think about it, yeah. Yeah, and I would think about that now. I would think about what's actually our target. You know, more like a board game where you say this is going to be two to four players playable in thirty minutes. Um, even though I'd done that with board games, I kind of didn't know what to expect this. And because there was not really a big working save or a working save, um, I wasn't playing a lot of maps through completion. We were still just building. But, you know, once we got to, like, feature complete, then, of course, we started. Mm-hmm. But by then, some of the systems are, are so far in place yeah, that... Sure. Um, but I also felt like we wanted to give people something meaty to play. So, you know, maybe maybe that's another consideration is at the time, if you would have said, oh, this map takes two hours, 
Okay. Mm-hmm. Um, in retrospect, I think that made the multiplayer kind of difficult, although you, you could save, but, you know, if you're playing hot seat multiplayer or something and, um, you know, and maybe one of the things I'm sort of proud of is there, there are so many play hours in that package. You know, there's five times five, you know, there's between 25 and 30 maps because a couple of the campaigns had five missions and, you know, some of them take hours. So there, there's just so much value in that thing. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, yeah. I mean, I think what, what stood out for me was that one of the things about RTS is that, you know, you play an RTS for five hours, you might be, you might be playing 12, 13 games, right? And yeah. so you get a, start to get a sense of like, <laughs> oh, if I build this building first this time mm-hmm. around, or if I invest a little more in this infrastructure, or if I start with this type of unit. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, you guys were kind of, you know, you had elements that reflected the RTS gameplay, mm-hmm. you know, in the game, but I wasn't getting that much repetition. I wasn't getting as much repetition. Right. Right. Like, I don't know how many missions I played total. Yeah. But I may have played 10 hours total and only played, like, mm-hmm. five <laughs> missions or yeah. something like that, in which case I wasn't necessarily... I didn't feel like I was, like, learning the system as much as I, I could, if you know what I mean. Yeah. It was more of a... I don't know in a sense, a puzzle game of every scenario is so specific. Yeah, that too. Um, but, you know, that was that part was intentional. And, yeah, and definitely a little bit less. It's interesting because the multiplayer was a mode that, you know, of course, we've put a lot of effort into. But I really, when I think back of the game, I never think of multiplayer. I mm-hmm. just think of the scenarios. I think of, I think of the, you know, the immersion in the campaigns and how, you know, uh, like one of the things that was neat was... Saladin and Richard Leinhart were contemporaries and they encountered each other. Mm -hmm. And so those two campaigns were very neat because there's one or two crossover missions or maybe Mm -hmm. at least one where first you played as Saladin and then you played as Richard Leinhart. And so your goals are, are are opposed and, and that was neat. And so you, yeah, essentially you're trying to crack, you're trying to crack each mission. Mm. And so it's less about learning say in Starcraft, you know, all the systems and building those up and more about, how do I use these particular play pieces that I have available to me here to get through? Although you did progress, you know, in each mission through the ages. Um, so there's that commonality, but yeah. Was there, I forget, was there like a skirmish mode as well, like against the AI or was it like, if you're playing single player, you're basically playing the campaign. Yes. I think that's the case because we didn't, yeah, we didn't build an AI that was really capable of more free form. I think I, I'm trying to remember whether there was the option. I, I think it was just the single player campaigns and the, if there was the option, it was forgettable. So let's put it that way. <laughs> right. Sure. You know, I, um, I mean, I can see why not. I mean, if you have, if you have set maps, it mm-hmm. makes the AI just a completely different type, mm-hmm. of, type of problem. Mm-hmm. Um, and, you know, so you can do skirmish on, you know, skirm- I mean, multiplayer is a totally different thing because then there's no AI. So it's kind of easy to do, yep. you know, beyond the technical issues. Yep. Um, hmm. You know, and development cycle was short, uh, you know, shortish. I, I remember, you know, I think it was maybe a year or sub year. I don't know. You know, we started in September. It, it eventually shipped in uh, February of the following year. So there's maybe, you know, 15 or 16 months in between start and shipping, but we weren't working on it that whole time. Like at some point we finished it and then there was a bit of a wait, like, Oh, let's wait through the holidays or just going through lot check for a few months or something like that. So, so there was definitely, you know, hard cuts or things that we couldn't pursue that maybe we would have liked to, but in retrospect, I kind of feel like we overachieved for just size of the team. And, you know, fortunately, you know, the license was so good. And so I'm, I'm really grateful. It turned out 
turned yeah. out well. Well, I remember I felt like like the the combat aspect of the game was like very meaty. Mm-hmm. I felt like there was a lot of pieces to play with. Mm-hmm. And, like that part was very interesting. Um, the um, did you um, did you start like was it originally like closer to like an, an advanced wars template or did you kind of like just use that inspiration and then just take all the pieces from Age of Empires and just kind of throw them in the game and start to see what happened. Yeah, more the latter. I, I definitely didn't... I didn't want to just try to ape the systems, mm-hmm. you know? And so I never even really... Or maybe it occurred to me, but I specifically avoided it. I, honestly, even now when I... I don't like looking at inspiration too close to the game I'm working on now. In that in that case, I had to because, you know, it was like, yeah, it needs to be like Advance Wars, and I wasn't very familiar with Advance Wars. But what I took out of Advance Wars was the... Um, you know, top-down 2D tactics. Um, Age of Empires had... Let me think. No, it was deterministic. Mm-hmm. Like, like there wasn't a... There's no randomness? Attack roll. Well, I'm trying to remember now. Because I made a spreadsheet combat simulator. Mm-hmm. Yeah, no, I think... Okay. But, you know, we, we yeah, I just didn't really try to drill down into the core system of Advance Wars too much. Oh, well, Advance Wars also was about had that mechanic of like you, you go stomp on the cities and knock them down. And then that becomes, you know, Mm -hmm. an age of empires was, so we didn't want to say copy that an age of empires already had the, um, you know, the existing conceit of like, you know, building up your towns Mm -hmm. and then that sort of thing, as opposed to conquering, you know, things in the same way. Um, so yeah, definitely the latter. I was trying to look more of what would age of empires look like if it was like retooled as a, as a turn-based, yeah. Um, Did you guys ever consider top down instead of isometric? I'm trying to remember, how did we end up on ISO? Because ISO certainly caused us some right. some headaches, and definitely wanted. There was a bit of a UI issue where sometimes you have like units behind a building, and you're mm-hmm. trying to get the unit, not the building, and you know with the touchpad, and that that was definitely like like one of the things that would be picked up in reviews. Yeah. I'd have to go back. I still have, you know, access to the documents thing. I have to go back and look at that because that was more of an art exploration. No, they they arrived at ISO pretty early. I mean, it's Age of Empires itself was ice, you know, yeah. isometric, so it could be. Just, yeah, that's just one of the easy things to start with. It was that was. Yeah, you bring it up in reviews. That was basically the reason I stopped playing the game. Oh, yeah. Like I got in one of those battles. Oh where, yeah, where it's just units and units, units and units. And like I literally like I want to click on that I unit know, and I, know. I literally I cannot click on him and I don't know what to do. Yeah. And I was just like, okay, well I Yeah. Yeah, there's a point of frustration where you either Yeah. No, I, I think when I came on there was one or two concept images already and I remember they were already isometric. Yeah. So I don't know, that must have been explored right before Yeah. Or before I came on, it's it's um, I don't know. For me, it's just one of my pet peeves. I actually kind of hate isometric strategy games. Oh, yeah. Period. <laughs> yeah. And like, it was not in my power to change Civ three. Mm-hmm. When it came time to Civ four, I was like, we are going back <laughs> to straightforward grid. Nice. Like, I know we can't quite do overhead, but yeah. like, we're at least yeah. going to have a straightforward grid. And the funny thing about it, this it, it caused there was a continual back and forth between me and the artists for like mm-hmm. because the artists like like a diagonal. Right, mm-hmm. um, and I, from my point of view, I'm like, well, just turn the building, <laughs> yeah. what, turn the building however you want it to be, but like the grid's going to be right. straight. And I'm like, right. no, no, it needs to be, it needs to be <laughs> angle. Everything goes better at an angle. 
So like the eventual compromise is that there's actually a hotkey in CIF4, a very mm-hmm. unknown hotkey. I think it's like control <laughs> W or something that you press it and the camera will swivel 45 degrees. Oh, well. And the, the game is, iso- you know, it's yeah. a 3D game, but like it's from that isometric angle. That's funny. Um, and of course, almost no one knew about it, but like it mm-hmm. was this like the, the, the artists who just like, I don't know, it was, they, you know, I have my own issue and mm-hmm. I think they had their own issue mm-hmm. and like they were able to like, okay, we can now breathe and play the game. And, <laughs> Uh, it's just yeah, but but yeah, that part was that part was tricky. <laughs> yeah, presentation of information is. I mean, that even factored in with Darkest Dungeon of when we when we were first before we even broke ground, we were exploring like combat and dungeon exploration was going to look more like a board game, like top down, mm-hmm. moving through the corridors. And you know, I, one of the factors was honestly, you know, we, Chris, you know, we knew the art was was a big deal, and. Chris just like, I'm really having trouble making these guys look interesting when all we see is their heads, mm-hmm. you know? And so a, a strong consideration in arriving at our side on view was they look a lot better. And then it became an exploration of, okay, mechanically, can we make this interesting enough? There is, is there enough depth? Is there, you know, yeah. versus say like an Ultima style top down 2d. So, yeah. I mean, it was one of the first things that stood out for me the most from Dark Ascension right away. I mean, and I was like racking my brain. Has there has there ever been a game that did like this one D combat system? I, I don't think so. I mean, you know, of course we've got <clears throat> games like Final Fantasy or Fantasy Star that were, you know, arranged, but, but you're like, just clicking attacks and seeing them yeah. as opposed to the, actually in a line. Right, right, yeah. I mean, usually it's like they're kind of two lines facing each other mm-hmm. instead of everyone's on one line, mm-hmm. or you have like the front row characters and the back row characters, and sometimes that stuff is abstracted, like yep. in, like Bard's Tale, yep. but like. There's never exactly. this concept of like there are four slots and there's four slots on the other side mm-hmm. and um, and beyond that you know the characters can kind of slide back and forth and like it um, yeah I'm not aware of it and that you know I mentioned in my talk that for a while a concern was is there enough depth to actually create a meaningful tactical interaction here and fortunately we found there was but but you know there are limits mm-hmm. and but it was fun to explore that because it did feel like. I don't know. So, you know, when you're designing, sometimes it's really nice to feel like you're at least breaking some new ground, right. and you know, you're, you're adventuring the unknown because that's where some of the creativity comes in. Mm-hmm. And yeah, it was kind of a fun exploration. Yeah, it seems like you kind of got some like free gameplay in the sense that like you were like the first person to find this hill, right? And there was just <laughs> yeah. a bunch of fruit laying on the ground. Yeah, that like because no one else had done it, it was just like very easy to pick that up. And, yeah. Um, yeah, that's you know that's that's cool. I mean, it's it's interesting that that came from you. I mean, do you feel like that primarily came from like an art issue? Like that was what was like that's what you alluded to that was driving that. It I mean, yeah, that, that was the first step. That was the first step. Yeah, because Chris, I think, was sitting there just thinking about how he didn't want to draw the tops of people's heads, and it didn't look that interesting. And so I think you know he came up with this idea of of, of them from the side, and then of course was trying to like convinced me of it and at mm-hmm. first I was really reticent um, but then the more we talked through the mechanics the more I, I thought okay yeah there could be shielding there could be yeah we're swapping mm-hmm. um, the first and the second spots can be and, different and- yeah and I had already been thinking you know of Ultima and Bardstale and things like that and so then I immediately just started thinking of Bardstale and that whole yeah yeah the first two are melee the back two are ranged and we can control which then, you know, it became a communication issue of are people going to buy, like, how do we communicate the idea that this attack can only be used from slot three mm. and can only hit slot four? 
But then that's also exciting to think you could have an attack that can only be used in rank one, but only hits four. Or you could have one that can be used in two, but hits two and three, or one and two and three, or, or two, three, and four. It gets a little weirder. We, we did very, very little in the way of like, you're in rank one, but you can hit two and four. Mm. You know, that's just weird. weird right? it, it's, it's hard to come up with a, other than maybe the idea of an indirect fire artillery thing, it's hard to f- come up with like a physical justification of that. We did a little bit of that with boss battles, like the prophet, but he calls down, he calls down basically, he predicts the rubble that's going to fall on your heads and he marks where it can land. And then you got to decide, like if someone's at death door and you see it's going to land on them, you have a moment to try to move someone else in there. That's that gimmick of that battle. But yeah, but yeah. So the more like I started thinking of the systems, I, I got excited. And then I decided it needed prototyped. Mm-hmm. Um, I started a game maker prototype of it, but I think what really sold me was, you know, the more Chris and I talked about it, the more he sketched it up, mm-hmm. you know, it really just visual prototyping, um, sketched up, you know, we started working out the mechanics and then it was like, okay, yeah. we're committed to trying this path. And if we find, and I think even when we started coding it in the back of my head, I was thinking, you know, if we hit a dead end here within the next three months, we're going to have to change, yeah. but then I'll have some ammo to go back and say, let's do, you know, something else. And we just kept finding it was, it was working. Yeah. I mean, and, it's, you can you get all these interesting permutations. You can only get that these interesting permutations if the starting point is so simple. Mm-hmm. Like I'm thinking in comparison. So like I did a game that had tactical RPG combat with Dragon Age Legends and like oh yeah and and we had like a two by three grid which is a did you more, do that up Bioware or at um... uh, it was at it was a group called EA2D which was in mm. um, it was in the Bay Area it was at Redwood Shores okay. but it was associated with Bioware mm-hmm. I mean so we worked with them but it was developed like in our studio okay um, and yeah we had a 2 by 3 grid and and but that meant was like I, I wasn't going to have something where I was like okay if you're in if you're in coordinate 1, 2 you can mm. target someone in coordinate 2, 2 I mean it's just like that's crazy yeah. right so we had stuff like okay this thing hits everyone in the front row and this hits everyone in one this one, hit, this one hits everyone in one column or this hits one everyone mm-hmm. in the front Ugh, I'm getting column and row back <laughs> sorry this hits everyone in the in like one row and yeah. this hits everyone in the front column or this hits everyone in the back column so you could do stuff like that that's like like described a general area mm-hmm. but you, you, you we just couldn't do stuff that targeted specific locations right. it's only possible like in 1D yeah so. yeah yeah it was kind of surprising to realize it was I don't know. There might be a game out there, especially when you look back. You know, we're talking Commodore uh-huh. stuff, and there's so many Commodore it's games. A good question. There's probably like, a game out there that it did it. It seems like almost impossible that you could not find a game that had like yeah. something that went there. But I mean, at the same time, for you, the idea was original, right? Like, yeah, you weren't, yes. you weren't grabbing it for somewhere. You just it emerged. Yeah, no, it, it emerged when Chris showed up with a sketch, and I was like, okay, you know. All right. Um, so uh, back to Age of Kings. Mm-hmm. Um, so we talked a little about the combat and the campaigns, mm-hmm. and so it was a small team. So I presumably maybe like you had a hard time getting enough iterations on it. I suppose. Yeah, yeah. I mean, it was, and there was so much work that even just fulfilling the, you know, the first iteration of each system and each map and each, you know, there wasn't. Yeah, there wasn't a lot of time, and you know, programmers were pretty heavily tasked and working really heavy hours. And um, you know, I'm trying to remember. It's been ten years sure. or, or a little more, but you know, there was the normal amount of iteration in terms of just like, well, let's tweak that, or you know, maybe tweak that equation. Mm-hmm. I just don't recall. I, I think a lot of the iteration happened 
between me and the paper and the spreadsheet or even the GDD, uh -huh. like, you know, while they were working on one system, I had lots of time to think about stuff. And so, you know, I would kind of model or even do calculations or, or just have lots of time to stare at something and then, you know, edit the GDD and redesign, you know, kind of refine the design that way. Um, and a little bit of the paper prototyping for sure. But, um, yeah, not a lot of, when you're on a project like that and a small team and, and basically it's, I've honestly never yet in my career worked on a game where they said, you know, it's it's the critical thing is we get this right, not how long it takes or how much we spend. Mm. Every single thing I've ever been on has been um, the run. We're running out of runway. <laughs> you know, it's time to pull back on the yoke and hope we fly. Yeah, sure. And you know that was an example. So there's really no chances to go. You know that system's not good enough. Let's. It, you're just in this race against running out of time and money, and hoping that you can effectively get the Metacritic where you want it to be. You know, in, in other words, make a good game in the yeah, whole yeah, thing. Yeah. So, and even though that was a huge license, it was not a, a giant. You know, did, did you guys use multiplayer to try to help balance the game, or was that more of just like we're I, trying to get this to work technically, and it just kind of came online too late to like mm -hmm. make a difference for the design? Yeah, I did a lot of spreadsheeting. And I did, for the multiplayer maps specifically, I did, uh, essentially I made, so I made a level editor in Excel mm -hmm. where we, uh, using, cause I, I mentioned I'm a, you love Excel. I'm a hacky programmer and I'm a hacky programmer, meaning right. I, I'm not. So, so I did something where essentially it would, it would export, um, you know, you could lay out the cells with colors and or borders and or number or alphanumeric entry. Mm -hmm. And then so it would kind of export like, oh, the cell's green, meaning it's a forest. You and would, or, like draw the map in Excel? Yeah. Well, like color. Yes. Uh, like, okay. Like, the, the, I, mean, I can see how that could happen. It sounds yeah. like, I mean, you must really love Excel. I do. And, and well, it's also, you know, maybe my lack of being able to actually, like, I didn't know how to window program in Windows and make a proper... Sure. Well, editor. I mean, it's a, it's a good question, right? Like, um, is it better to, like, take the time to write a map editor or is it better just to plunge forward and do it in Excel and, like, that's it? Although they did make... Okay, we did make an editor, but there was still a step where we'd lay it out in Excel, mm. export that, the map editor would read it in, but then the map editor had the ability to uh, hand paint tiles mm. and hand paint specific tiles and also, excuse me... Um, then we could put a lot logic in and uh, for spawning in events, essentially. So there was an Excel step. It would come in. It would look ugly because why? So why was there an Excel step then? If you could do it, in, uh, because this allowed us to create. Because the level editor was not in place until later in the project. Oh, okay. So essentially, uh, you know, Eric and I could work together to completely make every map, mm -hmm. you know, from a from a purely just layout perspective, and then by the time the level editor came on. Okay, then we would read in, and then we would have to do a combination of um, doing a lot of like hand painting to clean the maps up, and then adding the logic right in there. And it was a really neat tool; it just didn't come on until very late. Um, yeah. And it's, it's so essentially, it was a, it was kind of a bottleneck issue. Yep. We could proceed this way and create all the design content. Um, yep. But oh, I know for multiplayer. So I did. So I did a pathfind. I coded in pathfinding, mm -hmm. and essentially could do things where. Um, Lay out the multiplayer map, mm -hmm. and let's say it's a four-player map. Put the four starting uh, starting locations, and then I would use pathfinding 
to essentially create a score for each of those of, you know, how close are we to resources? How close are we to these things? How far are we from other thing else? And then, you know, crunch all those numbers and then look and say, oh, this starting location is underpowered or overpowered. Hmm. And that I could go back quickly just in, you know, it's, it's all one sheet. And then I could like change the train or move the start location, recalculate. Oh, now it's better. And so what I did is just, you know, on paper in the spreadsheet for every multiplayer map made it so, um, because I wasn't a big fan. Like I always feel like things that are purely symmetric look boring. Like this is one reason I I'm crazy because I'm like one of the only humans that doesn't understand the allure of league of legends. Mm. Um, I just look and I'm like, there's only one map and it's symmetrical. <laughs> like this looks incredibly boring. Yeah. Um, and I get why, you know, you know, obviously the game is not about the map per se. It's about the evolving strategy. You know, it's more like chess or something, yeah. but you know, I, so I wanted every map to have flavor and I didn't want to feel like you're always, you know, it's a square and the four starting locations are exactly, and there's always this amount of forest in each corner and this. Yeah. So, you know, I'd lay things out and run all the pathfinding. And then, so that allowed it to be asymmetric and different and have some personality. And as far as the, the scenarios themselves, that did was, it that pre, was did play it pre-compute the pathfinding. Is that? Yeah. I would just, um, yeah, it was all in a VBA macro. Okay. So I just like, uh, you know, I could change, I could color a couple cells green and that's forest and recalculate. And it was doing like move points and things like that. Oh, you know, how, how many move points are you away from right. a did stone you guys, resource? Did you guys consider random maps or was this that just like outside? The it scope? was outside the scope. Yeah, sure. Yeah. Yeah. I'm sure we thought about it and it just, yeah. uh, because it, you mentioned like symmetrical maps and whatnot. And like, I mean, to me, that's one of the reasons why I love the age of empire system is games is like, they're one of the few artists mm. I'm trying to think of another one that had random maps as opposed to like, you know, like a StarCraft map, which is basically usually like a, a mirror. Oh, yeah. In multiple ways. Yeah. Um, you know, and I think at those levels of competitive, you know, there's always good, you're going to find a flaw in a map. And so that you, I understand why your hand gets forced into that. Yeah. But, you know, this was like, oh, no, we're not worried about, you know, the esports scene. <laughs> no. And uh, another reason that random was beyond our scope is one of the things we did well in the project, but it was a great cost. And, um, was I think we ended up having like 800 hand painted tiles. Mm-hmm. You know, we had like variations in the mountains wow, and a lot. yeah, and it was really neat. My friend Aaron Parrott painted them um, and did a great job. And you know, and so there was a lot of hand touch up that needed done to the maps. So I think if you go back and look at the train, it's actually really nice looking mm-hmm. and organic. And every every one by two mountain range doesn't even look the same. There's variations and mm-hmm. you know, so. It kind of got out of hand, I remember, to the point where all of a sudden, yeah, he's making 800 tiles. Mm-hmm. And he's just over there painting. I thought he hated me because I would just come in and say, hey, hey and I'd hear nothing. And um, it's funny because we're, we're friends. But, like, yeah, it just turns out he's kind of a quiet guy. And he had so much work to do that it was just, like, every day just painting <laughs> tiles and painting tiles. Yeah, yeah. Um, yeah, so, and then balancing the the campaign scenarios were, you know, taking an attempt at them, playing... And just making sure we could complete them. And, you know, and then we brought in some interns and things like that to help uh, play and just kind of verify that, you know, everything was completable and that the goals, you know, every single goal was it uh, completable. Because we did like a star system where there'd be like three, like you could win the battle, but right. there's also like three goals. And so if you want a three star every map, you know, you got to go through and, um, yeah. But, you know, it, and then unit wise, I did a lot of, I had a combat simulator in Excel and just kept running things through. Like, if I'm an archer on a mountain and I get attacked by this, you know, what, it, how do these health end up? And I just kept doing that, you know, just trying to target things that made sense. Like, 
yeah, if a cavalry attacks a pikeman, you know, what what should he end up at? Maybe like, you know, one third, two thirds, or whatever. And then what if he attacks him on a hill and that kind of stuff, and just throw modifiers in? Yeah. Did you ever play the Prince of Persia DS game? Uh. Yes, I did. The one that we were panicked about that for a little while because mm. I was like, holy, oh no, it looks like our game. Yeah, yeah. And it's got the Ubisoft <laughs> marketing, you know, might behind it. Yeah, yeah. Um, and we were being published by Majesco. <laughs> it, it looked totally different because they went like mm-hmm. total stripped down, abstracted, square, yeah. um, you know, perspective. But like, it was strangely appealing on that level as a board gamer. Yep, exactly. Um, I mean, it, I can see how, like, marketing-wise, that's probably why... It, mm-hmm. I, I mean, I, I have no idea what it sold, but, I mean, I guess, like... I would have guessed they would have had an issue about that, but, yeah, from, like, a... For a d- game designer... Yeah. <laughs> it yeah, it was a good deal. It did, and, and I remember when, like, I saw it in a magazine or something, and I, or online, I was just like, it's gonna eat our lunch, it's gonna eat our lunch! <laughs> I, You know, it's... I don't know, I like to panic when I'm working on a game. Well, you guys um, have you have the guys that, by far, the better license for that. Yeah, we have the better license, but... I don't know. It just this is how, whatever. It's, it, it, your own project. You're always yeah. You're just worried. <laughs> how's it going to do? Or, yeah. or well, also I think just anytime you see something similar, all of a sudden it becomes a basis of comparison. So I think the other concern is just if this game kills it, and then we come out and it's like the review is like, well, you know, Prince Persia did this better. Prince Persia was more innovative in this way. But you know, all of a sudden there's a benchmark, or as if you were the only other game besides Advance Wars that has done something like this. You know, I mean, the hard part is you're always compared against Advance Wars, but yeah, um, sure. So anyway, but I don't remember the Prince of Persia one. I, I don't think it ended up being being great. I mean, I, you know, I did play it. And I, I enjoyed it some, but I don't think it like left a big mark. So yeah, I, I think most people got put off by the the visuals, but it had a really yeah. interesting like card. Or, you know, yeah, it did. Mechanic, you like build you build a deck of units basically. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, it's it's a, yeah, it's an interesting, somewhat forgotten game. But yeah, um, it was neat. You know, at the beginning of that DS era, where there's just so much experimentation. Oh, man, I, I mean. I consider my DS like the best console I've ever had. It's so cool. Like, there were amazing games on the DS. Mm-hmm. Like there was so much creativity that came through that system. Um, Sonic made a return, and just yeah, there was there was a set of great games that I was really bummed that very quickly, you know, the budget shrank because mm-hmm. there became that gap of there's you know first party Nintendo making money and and then maybe like Ubisoft and everyone else couldn't figure out how to make money in the middle and mm-hmm. so it became there's only these value titles that are trying to appeal at 1999 yeah. not not deep very low budgets you know i remember because I went to another company, uh, Big Sandwich Games, you know, and then we were like, we'd come down here and pitch, mm-hmm. and we had DS experience, and it was just like people were wanting DS games made for like two hundred thousand dollars or something. Wow. And I want to say the Age of Empires was somewhere in the like six hundred thousand dollar budget range. Right. I, I could be wrong; I wasn't even really privy to the numbers, but um, but you know, they they kept whittling down instead of saying, "Oh, this great device, and we should make bigger and better yeah, things." Yeah, it yeah, was it's true. It was like. Yeah, it was yeah. tough. I mean, making cartridges in general, especially for a, a a device that to some people it's about kids' games, right? Mm-hmm. Like, I mean, it's it's tough, right? Mm-hmm. Like it, but you know, like the potential was there for really interesting stuff, mm-hmm. um, and you know, a lot. So a lot of the most interesting stuff did end up coming from Japan. You know, like, mm-hmm. the, like the um, what was that music tapping game? Oh um, yes. Or like games like Etrian. uh something beat something yeah Elite Beat Agents yeah Elite Beat Agents had some crazier name in Japan like yeah the other one, or like the the Etrian Odyssey series mm-hmm. or um, man there were just so many great and or just I remember just at the beginning when the DS first came out because it just felt like at that time 
for PC games, and I guess maybe console games. They, you know, there are just only so many types of games, and mm-hmm. the, even thematically. Mm-hmm. And like when the DS first came out, I mean, like there's a game about being a lawyer and a game yes. about being a doctor, and <laughs> yes. I was like, yeah. this is amazing. <laughs> like it was so strange. But. I, I think, uh, yeah, at Trin Odyssey, I kept thinking. There should just be a Bard's Tale in here. Like, yes, right. one screen's the map. Yeah, there's just neat things you can do with the dual screens. Sometimes dual screens were a pain because you have to fill one all the time. And so even if you don't yeah, need it, you got to put stuff on there. <laughs> but then other times it's just completely brilliant. Like, that's where the map lives. Yeah. And, um, it, it, you know, the, the rule design I learned is like... Yeah, I forget what you guys did for the dual screens. Well, we showed battles like Advance Wars. Okay, on the bottom screen. Yeah, and then when you're in campaign mode, you know, you see unit info, which is great, or town building info. So it's essentially... It was your tooltip. It was my tooltip, Right, which is, like, the thing that would be a challenge for... Which is a challenge right now for, like, iPad games or whatever. But, like, there it was, like, almost built in because of that second screen, so... And it doesn't take away. You know, you can have the artists happy with how their buildings are look and the designer happy because here's a whole page of info. And the funny thing is, it's not like you could take a bigger screen and just chop it in half. Yeah. Right. You know, you can't yeah. just say like, okay, so this is what we're going to do with the iPad. We're going to split the screen in half and the top half is going to be de- de- dedicated to tooltips. The artist is going to be like, no way. I want the whole screen. <laughs> yeah. Right. But like you were forced to because you, you know, there were a few games that tried to like have one graphic between both screens. Yeah. But it, was not, it was always not good. It was not really a good way to do it. Right. So yeah. it's like you got that space for free, basically. So it felt like the missteps are when you're asking the player to look at both screens at the same exact moment. Yeah. You know, and it, it would work a little bit like, I think, what was Metroid Prime was like one of their first, you know, and you're you're kind of controlling the bottom screen, but you're looking at the top screen, and then everyone's going to look mm. down. But, um, so essentially, yeah, you just, in Age of Empires was good because we never had to really look at both. When you're battling, you just look at the top screen, see it resolved, then you look back down at the campaign map. Or if you're just on the campaign map, you can just, like, look up for the info. Yeah. Yeah. Although from a UI perspective, it's, I don't know, you know, I, I don't really love doing UI. And it's like, oh, two screens for everything. <laughs> so there's just so many mock-ups. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Because every single thing is like, what are both screens doing? Did Advance Wars come out near when you shipped? Like, what happened? <sighs> like, were you guys before that or after that? Or? I'm trying to remember. I feel like they came out first. Yeah. I don't remember. And it was great, you know. Yeah, yeah. Did you, like, play it and you're like, oh, man. Um... Did it come out first? I mean, yeah, I was blown I feel like away it, with I the... I feel like it came out first. I have a yeah. feeling like yeah. it seemed like it came out pretty early. So. I think we knew that we weren't going to compete with you know, with their resources and established game. And I think we knew we still had the hook of, you know, if you don't want to play in this cute futuristic yeah. area. So I f- we still had a hook. It was just going to be like if they did things really similar to us, you know, and crushed it. You know, then we would always just be like a, a poorer imitation. Um, but I mean, one of the reviews that scored us quite high, you know, and, and had a quote that is not bothersome. It was just something like, you know, aside from Advance Wars, this is basically the best tactical game you can get on the device. <laughs> right. And it's like, that's okay. That's a good place to be yeah, for right, a, right, a small, yeah. scrappy team, not first party. Yep, yep. You know? Yeah. Yeah. Uh, okay. So it, so the game came out, and yeah. I, I seem to remember like a lot of people were very positive on it, and like they were like a lot very like there seemed like a lot of surprise. Like, wow, this is a really interesting yeah. game. You know, there was like you know they, they weren't sure what taking Age of Empires to like DS was going to do, right? So. Yeah. Gamespot either gave it or nominated it for. I think we got the award, the most surprisingly good game. Mm-hmm. You know, because yeah. it was. I think people were also thinking 
everyone's going to try to make an RTS on the DS, and oh, it's not clear. Make an RTS, yeah, and right. it's not clear that that's even going to work. And and if I remember correctly, the first few, yeah, I don't know, I don't know if it ever, but um, yeah, it doesn't seem clear that it seems like it would not work. <laughs> and it'd be really muddled. And the graphics weren't so good that you yeah. could. Um, and so yeah, it was surprisingly good, and we got a BAFTA nomination, which was exciting. Oh, wow, for best strategy game, you know, like not best mobile strategy, right, not sure. best handheld, just best strategy game. I think, yeah, and that was super exciting. Yeah. We didn't win it, and I didn't get to go to the ceremony, sadly. But right. um, yeah. but that's a great honor still. I think it was just really neat to feel like, yeah, that's, that's you know, cool. it was recognized as I a mean, legit. It was a good conceptual game. choice at the very, very beginning to be like Age of Empires. We're going to make it like Advance Wars, mm-hmm. right? So, and I had nothing to do with that for right. the record. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> I just batted cleanup on coming in and actually having to execute <laughs> it. I guess. Yeah. Um, uh, all right. Cool. So, what what came next after that? Then I like to say every time I make a game I enjoy, I have to make one a racing game, which I don't enjoy. Um, I think it's actually held true like three or four times. So we actually made, well, I don't know, as an aside, the obvious sequel was Age of Mythology. Sure. Could have been amazing. Yeah. That's and they did make of... it. And actually, I think it was decent. But we didn't make it. Uh, that's too bad. Yeah. Lots and... of toys to play with. Like, man. Oh, I know. And I, and I was thinking, okay, you know, this team, we did this. We got yeah. the technology. We have a level editor. We're st- going to hit the ground running. It would be really fun to shift into mythology. Now I can do all kinds of crazy moves and, you know, combat abilities that are don't need to be justified by reality. Um, but we were owned. So Backbone was owned by Foundation 9 Entertainment, um, which which – included a bunch of other studios. And I think as far as I can tell, it's probably a matter of keeping other studios fed. Cause they, they, they gave it to a studio in Seattle. Mm. Um, and you know, it was probably like, Oh, there's a team there and they're idle, you know, it, from a business perspective, I like to think that because right. having some justification for it would, would, <laughs> would at least better. make it. Yeah. And although it's funny cause no one ever, I never had a single conversation. No one ever called me. No one wow. ever emailed me. No one ever said, Hey, you guys weren't even that far away. It's not no. Like- so <laughs> that perplexes me to this day. You know, like you've got this game that did way better than anyone expected to do. Got, you know, nominated in a, in a, in a fairly large set of awards. No need to do any learnings from that. And, you know, and again, I don't even know the team there. And did they use your engine. Yeah. They used the engine. Okay. Cause that was within the, uh, at least I believe they did. But um, no, but what I went on next was um, Sonic, uh, Sonic the Hedgehog game, Sonic Rivals, right. which was for PSP, and it was a side-on Sonic, which is cool. Um, but the whole thing was it, it, you're always you're always racing another character, so mm-hmm. essentially you're a side-on racing game, and that's actually um, we had already met Chris, Chris, my partner in Darkest Dungeon, mm-hmm. um, but Chris had been on a different project while I was on Age of, Age of Empires, but. Um, I was I was on Sonic Rivals and then Chris was also on Sonic Rivals, so that's right. the first time we so worked together. together. Yeah, and did you guys hit it off right away? Or yeah, I think we did. Um, we weren't like super close, but we just recognized like we seem to have c- common interests and mm-hmm. common goals. And you know, I was very design oriented; he's art oriented, and we kept. I think yeah, somewhere around there, it was like, hey, you know, at some point we need to work together on uh-huh. on something. Those were the seed where the seeds were planted. Um, but I was like commuting up from Bellingham every day. And so it was really hard because I got to socialize during the day, but I didn't get to socialize with anyone on nights or weekends because I would go back to the other city. And mm-hmm. so it was this weird, I felt like I had two lives in Bellingham I had all my friends. Mm-hmm. And then I had the Vancouver like sure. colleagues, but anyway, that's an aside. Yeah. The long story on Sonic Rivals was, 
you know, at first it was super exciting, like, oh, Sonic the Hedgehog. Wow, like, Age of Empires, then Sonic the Hedgehog. I can't believe this. Like, (laughs) all these, you know, amazing franchises. But Sonic, I don't know, without... I didn't enjoy the project. I don't think anyone on it really enjoyed it. It was pretty... It was pretty tough. There wasn't a lot of room to exercise creativity. Um, and, yeah, it, it just, you what know. Were you, what were you doing? Like uh, design, designing levels or designing the game? Designing the systems, system. yeah. And, and um, you know, overseeing the, the designers that are doing levels and stuff like that. And, uh, you know, it was also, yeah, it just felt a little bit. I mean, it was, it was a good challenge to do. And I, I don't remember if, I think initially I was... I was eager for it, mm-hmm. but you know, also like I like strategy and systems and mm-hmm. you know, it just, I don't know, but I, I think there was just other factors, which both with the client, but also internally that made the project really tough. And it made me realize a lot how much I'd enjoyed on age of empires. Like basically, Hey, here's the charter go in a corner and do this. Do this right. And all of a sudden it's like going through m- many layers you know, just to get anything accomplished and like changing visions and just. Did you have to have your lot of stuff approved? Is that what you mean? Yeah. Okay. Yeah, with the with the client and. Um, it's a lot of back and forth. It's like a and like. Yeah, it was. It was, um, and you know, we had the fortune of working with uh, Azuka-san, who was, I think, one of the original creators or on the original Sonic. But um, I think the best way to explain it is they had a very specific vision in mind. But the only way you could figure that out is by kind of turning things in that weren't the vision mm-hmm. and then having it corrected. As opposed to saying, like, hey, look, this is what we want exactly. Just mm-hmm. do it. You know, here's a house plan. Build this house. Yeah. It'd be like you kind of guess and you build, like, a type of house. And then, no, 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 no. I don't want three bedrooms, you know. And then you're like, anything else? You know, and so, you know, it's so – I don't know. But um, I don't want to throw too many – too many stones, you know, there was, there was a lot of reasons. And even internally, you know, there were, there were some struggles, um, you know, on the team, which is not uncommon and, um, just didn't make for a very enjoyable project. It was very stressful, um, on, on everyone, I think. And, you know, it turned out decent. Um, you know, it certainly did like set the world on fire. It turned out decent, but I don't know. It it felt like for me, I enjoyed age of empires so much more. Mm -hmm. And, uh, Yep. Yeah. So then, then came Monster Lab, which was an original IP, which was pretty cool. Okay. And um, that, yeah, Trent Ward and and Chris um, had kind of created within Backbone there, and it got a, a really decent budget from IDOS mm-hmm. for we a combination we DS okay. or sorry, um, no, yes, it was we sorry we DS, mm-hmm. and that was really cool and full of like neat ideas. Basically, you're kind of a Frankenstein. Um, a Dr. Frankenstein and you're building these monsters uh, composed of like heads and arms and torsos and legs and then you have to like battle your way across these maps. Mm -hmm. It was really cool. You collect ingredients and you craft monster parts then you assemble them together and you do all these mini games. It was weedy, you know, height of this Wii and DS stuff so it's like okay in this game you need to like spin the generator and build electricity and then tap 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 you know Mm -hmm. essentially everything had like a, a gimmick. Yeah. And I was the design lead and Chris um, was the art lead and both of us kind of took that project to vertical slice. And then I don't know, it was another, there's a lot of tension on that one too. And it's funny because Chris and I both left the company within like a week or two of each other. We both got to vertical slice and we're like, okay, you know, we're out, we're going to go, we're going to go do other things. Right. And, uh, but it was a good experience. 
it's really a neat freeform project to be like, okay, you know, every we got to come up with like 12 mini games mm-hmm. and a combat system. And, and I oversaw like that was a bigger team. You know, there was probably, I don't know, six or gosh, eight or 10 designers across mm-hmm. both SKUs or something. And um, it, it had its really neat challenges, was really kind of a neat idea. And um, it was fun to work on. Did I just have to remember. Did it come out eventually? It came out. So what happened is IDOS started undergoing major financial problems uh-huh. during the... So they had had a big budget and we're going to market the hell out of it. Uh-huh. And they they slashed the budget and then they pretty much dropped the marketing on it, mm. I think, from what I can yeah. tell. Because it, it launched after I left. Yeah. But um, it did come out. And actually the DS is like... I think the DS is the better skew of the two mm-hmm. and the, the remaining team like did a really good job on it and stuff. It just didn't, they just didn't put any ammo behind it. So I think it could have, it could have done a lot better, you know, right. but they, they were kind of struggling at that time and I'm sure had to make some cuts of which games they were going to push. Sure. Yeah. Um, okay. Well, so how, well, why did you guys leave? Like, uh, <laughs> or you, you need to speak for yourself. Like why, why did you leave? Um, you know, by that time, uh, the Sonic project I'd found quite challenging monster lab. Um, although creatively really fulfilling, um, you know, project elements of that were very, very challenging. And, you know, for me, I realized that I no longer wanted to be there at that company. Mm -hmm. Um, I just didn't feel like it was a fit anymore. So, uh, did you leave for a different job? Uh, did I have the job lined up? I'm trying to remember. I must have had it lined up because I'm not the type to leap. Uh, that's why I was wondering. Leap into the abyss. Like you were. From, I remember before. I mean, you were very excited to get into the games industry. Yeah. So, like, would you have? Would you have left not knowing necessarily that you would have gotten another job? No, I wouldn't have. I wouldn't have. So, <laughs> okay. I mean, but it's interesting to think back. So, what happened is, because um, I know the project I went to next, there was this company called Big Sandwich Games, which was a small mm. independent developer in Vancouver, and they were. Um, yeah, they they were going to make a new IP that was funded independently um, from like a third party investor, uh-huh. um, which was basically Mario Kart in the Sky. Um, okay. So it was when it was kind of an anime. Okay, take like Nausicaa, Valley of the Wind anime. Yeah. Okay. Um, and put put people in flying vehicles and make a Mario Kart. Okay. Um, but instead of on the ground, you're you know you're flying a little bit above the ground, and then like couch that in in this anime setting and make a story mode around it. Mm. And uh, that was called Sky Pirates of Neo Terra. And so what had happened is someone, some mutual, um, you know, co- a colleague had somehow hooked me up with these guys because they were looking for a designer. Mm. At that moment, Big Sandwich had basically been doing mainly like art outsourcing for Bioware actually. Okay. Um, and so they were going to start this project and they needed a designer and someone hooked me up. And so I left and started, started an LLC in Washington state that, and basically I was going to be a consulting designer. Well, I, I became a consulting designer. So I had that contract lined up. Right. Um, so I leaped into that, but I didn't know, you know, exactly how long that would be. And maybe I have to get other clients, but mm. I decided to take that leap. And yeah. Chris left for, I, I mean, just, just cause our stories end up unifying again. Yeah. That's the only reason he left for, the pirates of the Caribbean game at, at uh, mm. propaganda. Right. Okay. And, and for, for some of the reasons I think, uh, you know, it just felt like our, our time was up there, mm-hmm. you know, and it just, uh, it, I mean, I guess, you know, I can speak honestly, I just felt like structurally, I wasn't going to be able to affect any other changes that I felt were necessary to maybe like 
you know, have projects run the way I thought they should run. And that's not saying I was right. I'm just saying, you know, sometimes you just realize you're in the wrong element. Yeah. yeah. And, uh, okay. So talking about the game at big sandwich then. Yeah. So it came on, um, yeah, sky parts of Neo Terra and, uh, for DS mm-hmm. and it was, it was pretty cool. And like, so this project, you know, the funny thing is it never got published, but it was complete. It was it, we we completed it and it it never, never picked sh- up a publisher. Oh man! So it like it was ready for lot check and it had, uh, yeah, it had six player Wi Fi, uh, you know, multiplayer mm-hmm. that you could do. Had a single player mode that had, you know, a good I think like twelve hours of story mode, mm-hmm. um, where had this neat node map, this world node map, and all all created like custom world, um, you know, with lore and backstory and all these characters and things. And uh, art by this artist. Back up for one second. What's what's the moment to moment gameplay? Uh, moment to moment is is Mario Kart. You go on these races, uh-huh. and you have this flying vehicle, uh-huh. and you do three laps around a track. Okay. Um, you know, tracks are set in these different settings, and you pick up power ups, and you need to you need to try to win. You know, the okay. race. So it's 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 Mario Kart basically. Yeah, okay. And but then it, it had a layer above it. Right. Was... It had a. It had it essentially Mario Kart with a world mode, which was cool, where you go on. Um, okay, you know, like the node map on like the new Super Mario Brothers. Yeah. Okay. Um, like uh, on the DS or mm-hmm. 3DS, or whatever. Yeah. Um, it was basically like that sort of thing, except for a little more thematic. So you you would start in a location, and then you know the story would take you to a new location, and you would converse, you anime style, like mm-hmm. conversing with people and dialogue trees, and then um, and then you there'd be a race, yeah. and then you have to like beat people, and then you collect you collect crystals, and then upgrade your glider sure. or glide wing, we called them, and then you would unlock a new area, and so essentially that. So there was a good like twelve different tracks of different settings, or you know like in the forest or in these the reefs or yeah. in the swamp, and. Wow. All these heroes and yeah, just so much resources. I mean, it, it was. Yeah, I mean that sounds like a good idea, actually. I mean, I guess in some yeah. sense that's it's you know a racing game with a career mode that that, that exists mm-hmm. in other places, but like in, in you know a little more like explicit, you know, going from place to place in a world and, and upgrading. Like it seems, I mean, that seems like a good flow. It had really unique uh, visual style that I'm um, done by this popular sort of. Um, Canadian artist Camilla Dorico, and she does this anime style. She was like helmet girls and all these different things. So it was like her art. Um, yeah, so there was a lot. There was a lot of like love and care that was put into it. It's very, very original product, really. But um, so someone, someone funded it who wasn't able to publish it. Basically. Yes, yeah, someone they funded they who was money. Who, yeah, they had money. It was, it was a you know an investor essentially, uh-huh. and. Um, and the the sad thing is, like basically, the bottom fell out of the DS market while mm. we were making it, yeah, sure. and that's what I was talking about. That middle. So essentially, what we were making is is a high budget DS game yeah. that um, you needed to sell for a reasonable price point, and the only things left were Nintendo and twenty dollar. Yeah, that's bu- what makes bargain cartr- bin games right. That's what makes cartridges so hard. I mean, nowadays, like if you had a finished product. Like you're gonna find someone to sell it, right? You can just sell it yep. digitally, right? Yes. Like, I mean, for sure, you're gonna be able to find it. But like, it, sometimes those cartridge markets just got to a place where it didn't even make sense to actually sell the game. Yep, um, man. And so, you know, it's still, yeah, it's a real bummer because I mean, it it was completed. Yeah. Um, and so it's not even one of these things that just like you know was was vaporware and never happened. Or you're pitching. It's just like, you know, we designed all those tracks and. 
you know, I, I co-created the world and the characters. We did a couple comics. Like there was like a five issue image comic run on it and um, on the world. And, and this, this IP later has gone on to have, I think there's a mobile game of it right now, oh, really? you know, things like this, but yeah, it was published by the people who own IP under the Rovio stars program recently and stuff like that. But um, yeah, so I worked for a good year, year plus on, on that guy. Um, that must've been, that must've been tough. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it was because, you know, you're, I don't know, you put the same amount of effort and care into it, you know, it's, yeah. um, and so essentially, I mean, most people say they've lived through a cancellation at some point in their career and it's just weird to get it, you know, not canceled, but essentially, yeah, it was done. It was like ready for logic, ready for like TRCs yeah. and, and, uh, yeah, that's really weird. I haven't, I haven't heard of that situation very often. Right? Yeah. Like normally you get, yeah, nobody gets killed when you're, you know, you're at least maybe halfway <laughs> along. So, yeah. Yeah. Wow. And then, um, and then it actually got sort of exacerbated by the market was falling out of the DS. Publishers were still wanting Wii content, mm-hmm. so the you know the investors um, invested in. And to be clear, they weren't investors in Big Sandwich. They were investors in in their own entertainment company that were funding the creation of this. Okay. Um, and you know, Big Sandwich was hired on a work for hire basis to do it. Mm-hmm. But uh, then you know they had us work on the Wii. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, a Wii version of the same game. Okay. So essentially, we started making the Wii version, balance board, the whole bit, or you could use the Wiimote. And, yeah. um, you know, so we started making, took a couple of the levels and the characters and uprezzed it and started making that thing. And, you know, and they're out trying to shop to get a publishing deal for that thing. And then the market started falling out of the Wii game. So it's just like... <laughs> you gotta go faster, guys. Oh, I know. Yeah, it was, <laughs> it was rough. So I think we did that for... I think the Wii game, you know, got up to about two thirds complete or half complete. I don't know. So by this time I'm like living, breathing sky pirates for like, I don't know, two years or something, you know, and it was rough. And, um, and then, you know, they, they, I guess saw the writing on the wall and just stopped development, you know, or like, okay, we need to just stop. And, um, yeah, so that was, that was tough. So then big sandwich entered a full on, we were still doing some art outsourcing and that was keeping the lights on. Um, and we started dabbling in iPhone cause iPhone had come out by then uh-huh. made a few iPhone games, but nothing where any serious amounts of resources were put into it. Um, and they completely, you know, didn't even come close to breaking even. Um, and meanwhile we were, we were kind of in full on pitch mode. Mm-hmm. So, you know, we'd come to GDC. I was, I was thinking of this the other day, just today's a, re- or this GDC is a relief just because, you know, I remember a lot of GCs coming with the pitch documents or prototypes and just meeting with every possible person you could and just desperately hoping someone would give you a development contract, mm. you know, because you still needed a publisher back then, or yeah. at least, I don't know. Yeah, it still felt that way. Well, yeah, because you needed funding. And well, Kickstarter you, didn't yeah, exist. Yeah, so. you definitely needed funding. Yeah. You so probably needed a publisher anyway. But yeah. Because yeah. this would have been 2000, I don't know. Well, actually, okay, we started development on Sky Parts in 2007. This took us till 2009, I think. Mm. And um, so it was right around that time period. And so we entered, you know, we were just pitching. And there's still some great ideas we came up with Big Sandwich. Oh, I should add that um, I was a consultant for Big Sandwich for several mm. years. But then, you know, we were I'd been doing that for a while. And we knew each other so well and was able to parlay that into a partnership. So they brought me on as a partner, which was cool. And... Um, so, you know, now I had equity incentive to yeah. stay at the company and, and, um, 
you know, and service business work was drying up because Canadian dollar maybe was rising. I don't know. It's just like there's all these tough climates and, yep. you know, and then everyone's like Facebook games. And everyone jumps on Facebook games or whatever. It's just, um, but we pitched a lot of things, some really neat ideas, couldn't get much traction. And um, one day I was like, okay, we're kind of, I don't know if we're out of ideas, but I was kind of mining my back catalog at that point. Cause mm-hmm. I'm just like, you know, we've come up a bunch of stuff and not, nothing's really been sticking. And uh, I had done, I've been fascinated with this idea of, of like you play the dragon as the hero. Right. And, and so I had made a couple board game prototypes, you know, uh, a few years prior and they had never really amounted to much. They just never really were fun or, or I couldn't really, I, I was fascinated with the idea of start as a hatchling and then become this giant dragon and just like the dragon is the hero. But, um, so I think I talked to, talked to Glenn who, who, who ran the company. I was like, Hey, you know, I've got this idea and, you know, we batted some ideas back and forth. And I, and I think at one point it was basically like, you know, I just felt the urge to prototype, you know, I was like, maybe this needs to be a video game. And so we, we, uh. Yeah, I think he said, well, you know, if you'll if you'll sign the IP over to the company, then, you know, we could prototype it and spend some effort and make this one of the next pitches. And I didn't really see any risk in that because it was like, hey, if the game if I, if this game could get made, that would be amazing. Right. You know, that that's a real feather in the cap of I think any designer is to have your own IP get made. Mm-hmm. And, you know, it was really cool to work on Age of Empires and stuff like that. But I was really eager to, like, you know, have my own thing. Um and so yeah, we did that, and I started making a prototype in Game Maker, and within a month, it was like fun. You know, I would hand it off to people in the company, and then, you know, instead of the usual, like they're like forced to play it, and they sure. kind of, um, you know, they would tell me how they were playing at lunch or whatever, and it's really promising. At that point, were they were they playing like coach multiplayer? Like no, no, just yeah. single player Game Maker, kind of like one map, right, okay. just some of the rough mechanics in it. Right. Okay, yeah, and so I took that. I took that prototype and we wrote a quick pitch doc and we took that down and uh, someone connected us, essentially someone acting as an agent connected us with uh, a guy at Sony who was running the, the pub fund stuff. And, you know, this was PS3. So, you know, PS4 now that, you know, Adam boys, they're really banging on all the indie stuff, but Mm -hmm. this was when like, you know, there was a few advocates, but really not a lot of internal traction yet, but they had this pub fund, which essentially was, um, if you'll commit to being exclusive, they'll advance you or no, they'll do a minimum sales guarantee. Excuse me. They didn't advance you the money. They would say like, um, when you complete development, we will give you X dollars no matter what. And then we recoup on that. And so essentially, uh, yeah, minimum sales guarantee. So oh, okay. They give you the money and then they sell the game, but you don't get any more money until you pass that mark. Um, well, yes, but they actually don't even give you the money until you complete development. So well, it's right. like a pledge. Oh. Yeah. Well, this is important because... That's interesting. It is. Yeah. So it's saying, essentially, if you find a way to go make this game and you deliver it to us, we will give you, say, 500 grand or whatever. Right, right, right. And at least, you know, if you can do it for that, you know you're not exposed for any more than that. And, you know, it's a minimum sales guarantee. But it, when, at you, 14, when you do a contract like that, do they have a right to, like, refuse your submission? It was pretty terrifying, like... Because they must. Because I'm thinking through from, like, a game theory point yeah, of view. Yeah, I know. Like, that, that is kind of encouraging people just, like, if they're in this situation, they're like... 
well, this is the best we can do. We're out of money. Here you go. We yeah. got us our 500000 I was um, really just terrified that at some point they could, you know, just say, never mind. Uh, there was definitely some language to protect us from some of it, but there's there was always a small leap of faith that, you know, they're not going to totally hose you. So they, um, they could they could reject your game, basically, like at some point. You know what? I, I can't remember. Rejection, I think if we substantively made the game we said we're going to make, then right. no. Yeah, yeah. You know, so there was but a bit of like gating. It's, it's language, right? Actually, there was. There was phase one, phase two, okay. something like that. And so it's like there were gates. I see. Okay. So they couldn't just decide, what, a dragon game? No, we're not paying for that. <laughs> you know, you would pass. Who approved this? Yeah. Right. Um, so went down and pitched them. And I remember just being so nervous because, you know, things were getting pretty tight. Like we were getting we were getting pretty tight. We had had already had to lay off a bunch of our staff because the art outsourcing was drying up. And, yeah. Um, and Nick Sutner, who actually is still very prominent in the, in the PlayStation group right now, um, was a game evaluator at the mm-hmm. time and incredibly grateful to this guy. I mean, not because he did a favor. He just – he saw through this shitty prototype, this Game Maker 8-bit art that like um, – I had made the art at first and then my uh, co-designer Eric Emery, who actually I brought to this company, you know, was did like some cuter pixel art, but it was never supposed to be pixel art. And right. But anyway, he saw through the prototype presentation – and played the game and, you know, and, and liked it and mm-hmm. recommended, you know, that we do it. And so we ended up getting a pub fund deal for that, mm-hmm. which was cool um, for both PS3 and PSP. Mm-hmm. And that was important because that meant a little extra money. Right. You know, of course, a little extra money to port it, but more money pledged than what the porting cost right. would be. But you still have to pay for it yourself. So. Yes. So this is crazy. Like, so we did... We did a bank bond deal, which I think is the for a video game, which I think is the first in Canada to be done. So this is very common in movies where, you know, a studio or something will pledge when you finish the movie, mm-hmm. we'll give you this money, and then you go out and you get a bond guarantee on that pledge, and then a bank loans you against that. So, uh, and so we had to set that up in Canada. And Glenn Barnes, who ran Big Sandwich, spent pretty much full time for months and months and months, like just handling this paperwork. Like, you know, it would have been a lot simpler if Sony had just given you the money up front. Well, yeah, but they didn't want to take the risk because what if we don't finish? Or yeah, but it seems like they could have like a milestone system, right? Like I know I'm out, yeah, hundred thousand for the first. Thing yes, like, exactly. It just wasn't possible. They didn't have that flexibility, and yeah. you know they're not going to retool the whole process within that. So it was this incredibly stressful thing where we're like, yeah. okay, we have a contract, and I'm just going to say it was in the neighborhood of seven hundred fifty thousand dollars, and like. But we're like, we desperately need this money to get yeah. there. And so we're trying to set up this bank bond deal. Um, and banks are just like, they do not want a loan for a video game, right? And so we're like, okay, but Sony Computer Entertainment of America is pledging, you know, pledging this money. So we had to get a third party involved, which was called the the BDC, the Business Development Corporation. It's a crown corporation in Canada. And their job is to help secure thing like for similar cases where there's like two parties you know Mm. offshore party and and they come in and so we got like insurance from them so the only way the bank would lend Mm. is if this third party like was willing to take the insurance on that if we did complete and sony didn't pay these people would cover it Uh because the bank didn't want to be exposed so oh my god and it's and the only reason the bank was even willing to do that was there was a young pup at the bank that was trying to make them aware of this whole market of like, we should be funding video games. Mm-hmm. And it's like, this was their trial. Yeah. You know, and it's just this incredibly long. Then we had to get like this guy to come in and like ensure even, it was just insane. And like, I just remember I'd walk by the conference room and Glenn would be in there. It would just, 
30 pages, 30 contracts on the table, just looking them all over, you know, and trying to get them make all these pieces, talk to each other. And the money, like we drew down all our, all of our money. I don't remember how we stayed afloat. I think we had to draw our line of credit mm-hmm. because the irony is even with all this, that the, that money didn't even come in until like, you know, a matter of several months before we ended up getting the Sony money. Like it took months and months and months <laughs> and to get this bridge loan, right. but it did still help. Cause when yeah. the bridge loan came in, I mean, we weren't paying ourselves for yeah, months sure. and it was just nuts and like so much stress. Um, oh. But in the end, you know, I know this might be beyond the people are like, I wanted to listen to design, not all this business <laughs> shit. But, uh, but the long story short is Horde got made. Yeah. And it did decently, yeah. you know. Well, let's, and, okay, let's, let's jump back. Let's talk yeah. about the. So you, you had a paper prototype. You yeah. made a prototype. You made yeah. Um, I mean, like, was so when you say paper prototypes, I'm actually so this is I know there's something that you mm-hmm. are really into the mm-hmm. paper prototyping thing. And it's, it's something that I've never really been into all that much because I feel yeah. like there's like this gap. Between like what you yeah, do yeah. with a board game, what you do with a video game, that like, yeah. like I, I, there's similarities, but it's more like you know different branch, like, yeah, like yeah. different branches of a tree that have you know of a uh, I don't know evolutionary tree that at this point you know mm-hmm. they can't really cross pollinate completely. It's more like they can inspire each other. Yeah, um, and it's like you can if you go too far down the paper prototype, you'll be solving problems that are going to be irrelevant mm-hmm. to you when you get to the video game. But so all right, that's that's point. So so. <laughs> the Horde prototype I was speaking of that Nick Sutton reviewed was was a digital one. It was game. No, maker. I understand. Oh, okay, gotcha. But you started. Yeah. It started. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Be a paper prototype. Yeah, it started as a paper prototype because I was fascinated with the idea of being the dragon. And so the first one I made was terrible Ameritrash. Mm-hmm. It was essentially a roll and move dragon game. I mean, not totally. It was it was a grid map where there were cities that you would. And I did come up I mean, there was a couple of neat ideas. I came up with the idea of like every time you play, you randomly distribute the cities on there, so the game board changes effectively. Uh-huh. Every dragon has different characteristics. Some are slow and fat and tough, and some are fast and quick and you know weak. And um, and then caravans move between the cities, mm-hmm. um, you know, on the board game. So I ended up having a lot of bookkeeping. The mechanics weren't particularly inspired. It was just boring, you mm-hmm. know. And I didn't. It was boring to the point of I didn't see a way to fix it. It okay. wasn't like like I would have to totally restructure it, uh-huh. structure how the board works, how the. But I was I the ideas that I felt. We're strong. We're still the idea of the dragons could be different, have different characteristics. Um, the, the idea of this kingdom that's going on and you're kind of like pirates. Mm-hmm. You're effectively pirates raiding the medieval commerce right. here um, and the caravans in the, in the towns. And so then I sat on it for a year or two. And, you know, I've been playing a lot of Euro games anyway, but I decided, okay, I need to think like less literal about this. And I ended up creating this kind of a Euro game style one where you're, you're fighting for territory um, but the way the challenges are resolved were kind of like almost like in Shogun or Wallenstein where you put challenge cubes into a thing a and then kind of, and, you, you know. commit, you commit uh, like a bull. And so you, you mm-hmm. commit a certain amount of challenge that someone else could commit. And then, you know, the, that essentially seeds the random distribution. And, um, and it ended up actually being kind of a neat game. It just had no dragon feel at all. <laughs> it could have been anything. Right. So that's someone I might re- I might resuscitate at some point. And so I kind of called it Horde Abstract. Mm-hmm. And it just didn't it didn't pay off the dragon theme at all. There was no sense of growth. Uh-huh. You were never like a weak dragon that became a strong dragon. It was just boring. Um, so I just sat on that, mm-hmm. you know, for a long time. And so then when I made the digital prototype, you know, the parts that 
yeah, did inspire me. We're like, okay, I still want to make the dragons vary. You should be able to, like, put points into your dragon's speed or your dragon's carrying or your dragon's fire breath or dragon's hit points. Mm -hmm. And then, um, you know, this should be like a little tiny kingdom that's doing its thing that is generating commerce and wagons are traveling and it's all happening and you're... Do you think your original idea was just it was just like inherently something that just should have been a video game from the very beginning? Yeah, yeah, yeah. I I think there's still probably a way to go do it, mm-hmm. but you know, part of part of what I was fascinated with is the idea of this ki- kingdom. And the beauty of the video game is you can simulate the kingdom, and there's no bookkeeping. Yeah, there's no bookkeeping for you. Yeah, yeah. So, so it also I think became a, you know, Horde, I call it Stratacade, strategy, arcade action. And it was kind of MOBA-like, but I, I was unfamiliar with MOBAs. I had not played Defense of the Ancients at all. Right. Um, and I remember once Horde came out, people were like, it's kind of like Dota. I was like, well, what are you even talking about? <laughs> um, you know, because Horde came out in 2010. And so this is before the huge rise of everything. Yeah. Um, and... But you know it's session based. You would play for ten minutes, right. and in that ten minutes, one character. There's stuff. There's yeah. complicated stuff going on in the background that you're yeah. reacting to, and yeah, I, I see that. And there, there's growth. You within the session, you go from weak to strong. Mm-hmm. Um, so there was the leveling up. There was the real time. There was, but it's still strategic because it wasn't purely just reflexes. And um, yeah, I think that. I don't know. The, the way I like to try to approach things is just like what systems work for this theme and mechanic, what we're trying to do. I, I really hate, I just hate feeling like I'm following in the footstep or like exactly. I mean, obviously there's times where you get inspired that of course, but it's, so I, I don't know. The neat thing about Horde is, yeah, I feel like it's kind of this weird mismatch. You know, we were talking about pirates earlier and mm-hmm. I think it's such a neat hybrid game, but like there's action, there's strategy, there's narrative, there's, and um, not that Horde's anything close to that. I'm just saying it was neat to blend arcade action with strategy because up to that point, thinking about the dragon stuff, it was always like strategy, strategy, strategy. Mm-hmm. Yeah. We might want to. So for people that haven't played Horde, you might want to yeah. go into like what because a lot of it was like kind of a question of like when you were going to take stuff, right? Yeah. So Horde, um, the idea, you know, it's named after a Dragon's Horde. Um, so you always start on your Horde. Your Horde is your home base. Mm. And there's lots of different maps. And the idea is you're, it's a score attack game where your goal is to gather as much gold as possible within 10 minutes. Yep. And the way you gather gold is uh, you can go out and you can... Are there ra- always... I'm, I'm trying to remember. I mean, I played it a number of years ago. Mm-hmm. But were there always other Dragons? No, um, there are some single player levels. Oh, okay. Yeah, which actually, strangely, the single player levels are. I like, I should have explored that even more because mm-hmm. that's where a true score attack, you know, you get, it's sure. just you against yeah. the map. I mean, um, if there's a timer anyway, you don't necessarily need. Because actually, you know, it's funny. That's I feel like that, that was the thing that was the most awkward was the other dragons. I seem mm. to remember playing, especially levels. Were the levels where there would have been like four dragons? Yeah, yeah. There's there's level yeah one two three four maps of all types. Yeah, okay. And there's also co-op and competitive sure, maps. Sure, yeah. Um, because I felt like when there are four dragons, you know, it's funny. It almost it, it introduces yeah. a lot of the problems you get with any board mm-hmm. game that has more than two players. Yeah. Like if there's just one other dragon, like okay, great, like we can just face yeah. the drop yes. and like. But when there's four, it's like, well, who should I attack? And like, yeah. oh, great, those two are fighting each other. That's yeah. the best thing. Ever, oh, right? yes, know? no, like, the the classic. <laughs> The classic observer, you know, or in the three-way where, like, you just want to be the person that's not, not fighting. fighting. right. Yeah. And, yeah, we had, oh, gosh, we had we had such battles in the office, such battles. Like, it would get heated because, um, yeah, there was one map in particular that was two-player, and you start on the same side. It's uh. like, 
you know, so it's a rectangular map and you're both, you know, one's on the bottom left, one's on the top left. And it was the most brutal map because if you fall behind early, you know, in a two player game, all that matters is you have one more goal than the other guy. So it's not about achieving a certain score. It's about making sure. And so it just became this ruthless battle of because the hordes were close Mm. that, you know, if you if you get topped in the beginning, you know, you spend 10 minutes just basically getting your lunch money stolen over and over and over. And we, we called it, um, well, it's, yeah, we called it man's map only cause you know, it's like the true test of a person, you know, to do this. And it was just like so tense because if you made a mistake in that first 60 seconds. So, you know, if we really were like track talking trash, it's like, all right, right now, man's map, let's do it. Yeah. Um, did it have to be timed? I mean, it seems like timed is tricky. <laughs> Right? Time is tricky um, because you can you can get a lot of lame duck situations, right? Unless I don't know what, yes. kind of, what kind of comeback mechanics you had, but like not a lot, right? And so that was tough. So yeah, like that. You know, I think there's things I'd love to add to Horde. I feel there's so many there's so many ideas still on the tree for Horde. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, and I don't know. One day I would like to pay those off. Yeah, but yeah, I think we could have done some other victory mechanic besides time. That yeah, at some point, okay, you're ahead by this much or whatever. Yeah, but. I mean, the other side is tricky as well, right? Like, if it's just like, okay, whoever gets to this much gold, mm-hmm. if it's 10,000 gold, and I've got 9,000, and you've got 5,000, I mean, you're, it's basically the same situation. Yeah. Like, it just seems yeah, like yeah. impossible. Um, it is tough. Um, so, one of the neat things about Horde is it, yeah, it had single player, you, you know, and of course, all these are AI. You can play one one player, two player, three player, four player maps against AI. Mm. You can play any of those maps. What was the single player goals? It was just you had to. Achieve oh, it's just, just score. To, uh, this much gold in this amount of time. Yeah, sorry. Or, when you're we're, we're doing a high score thing. Yeah, anytime you're playing, anytime you're playing AI, uh-huh. um, it was a gold, silver, bronze trophy. Okay. Um, like, you know, you, you're, you're trying to essentially reach a trophy level on the map. Okay. Um, anytime you're playing competitive multiplayer, it's just yeah. scoring. And does that just mean like. You, your score needs to be a certain range at the end of 10 minutes or as yep. soon as you achieve that score? No, no, your score needs to be a certain range at the end of 10 okay. minutes. So, okay. And we would set those per map. So, you know, obviously it all would vary. So some maps would be crazy. Like, you know, you just need to get 25 grand to get gold. And other maps, it might be yeah. 100 just depending on what the map is. It seems like you'd have to do something. Like, it seems like time is not the best idea. It also seems like just like whoever gets to some high number. is not mm-hmm. It seems like you have to do something really chunky. So you can conceive of coming back. Mm-hmm. Like imagine like like to win you need four stars or something. Mm-hmm. And I don't know what you have to do to achieve those four stars. Yeah. Right. But like I've got three stars, you've got one, mm-hmm. but you can at least conceive of this thing you could do that could get you those extra stars right. to pass yeah. me up. You know, so you know you're in trouble, but like at least there, yeah, it's not conce- it's conceivable as opposed to like I mean, just this gigantic number. That- yeah, I mean it, it was Obviously, there's always cases where you can't, but there were some mechanics that did make it possible. And what it really come down to, so you so steal their horde or something. Or? Uh, okay, yeah. So um, it's kind of flowing back to me now. It's because it it was rare where you ever felt like you were 100 percent out of it. Okay. Um, but but that being said, there probably there was more we could have done. But there was a couple of key mechanics. One was a score multiplier. That, I mean, that's the biggest one. Is okay. the longer you stayed alive um, without. So essentially, when you're killed. Uh, meaning reduce the zero hit points, you're sent back to your horde automatically. So let's say you're flying around and someone reduces you to zero or or the enemy units, not even other dragons. Control is taken away from you. The dragon homes back to your horde, just flies like as the crow flies. He sits on the horde and his hit points build back up and then you have control again. And the longer you go without that happening, your score multiplier builds. Okay. And it can go times two, times three, and I think times 
maybe times four is the max, I think. Um, so that was the key thing is, uh, the score multiplayer was such a big effect. So, so this, this led to cool moments where, where you're, you know, reduced to 10% hit points. You're like, I need to get back to my herd. Cause you can also voluntarily fly back and regenerate hit points. Mm-hmm. So as long as you did that, it, your time alive is still ticking. Mm-hmm. And so the way you need to knock somebody down who's ahead is you, you need to knock them to zero hit points, knock their score multiplayer up and keep them from getting their score multiplayer back. Mm-hmm. So at some point you have to go head to head. We had power ups. That was really key. And the power up game was neat because, you know, one was like a fireball you could shoot from across, you know, with like projectiles. Another was like super fire breath. Another was like shield. And another was, um, Horde thief. Okay, yes. So it's basically a vacuum. You go over, you trigger the power up, mm, yeah. and you can hover over somebody's horde and suck up gold. Yeah, I think I remember that. Right. Yeah. So that also sets their multiplayer to zero mm. or back to times one. Mm. So this led to this tension where, um, you know, the guy who maybe is in the lead and has a high score in multiplayer is going out to get more gold. You can sneak over to his horde with horde vacuum and yeah. take his score multiplayer away. And as long as you've been careful about staying alive, now he's at times one and you're at times four. And you can come back. Um, and also, so the power-ups, you could also surprise people, like, look weak, but you have the super fire breath. And then right as they come, because they're going to come, like, engage you, um, boom. Or you have shield or whatever it is. And they're like, oh, shit. You know, and then you can, like, chase them down. Uh, so there, there was a lot of... It really works well. I mean, honestly, it's weird. I, I There's plenty of games that made that were bad. Like, and I've referenced a couple of them. Mm. But, you know, Horde was neat because... Multiplayer was really super fun. Mm. Co-op was really super fun. Single player by itself, you know, eh, was okay. But I, I think the idea of having a game that is super fun PvP and super fun co-op, you know, just, yeah, it was a blast. And we would have these intense matches. And in four-player, yeah, what would usually happen is it'd become a battle. But it's kind of self-solving. Sometimes someone's in the lead, so then sure. people dogpile. I mean, lose the score multiplayer. Then everyone's fighting for second. And, you know, there were lead changes and things. But yeah. I mean, I, I probably, if in that situation, I'd probably mostly play 2v2. I mean, like, yeah. it's just that. Oh, and there was, um, did we ever do team? Did we ever do team or just talk about, no, we did team. Well, yeah, did yeah. we just I, leave it I hope the... you did, because it seems like, Gosh, seems like no, that's the remember. obvious solution. I can't remember like, if we did. Player. We certainly wanted to. I don't know, but um, yeah, and sometimes somebody would play the spoiler. Mm-hmm. You know, like there was one guy in the team. I remember, like every time we'd play four player, mm-hmm. he would just choose someone he wants to attack with, just because he wanted to attack that person. It doesn't matter where they were in the rankings. So then everyone else would get mad, like, "Why are you attacking him? Like he's not even." Or you know, let's say I'm the one being picked on. I'm yeah, like, "I'm not even the lead." While you're t- you should go attack Corey. Yeah. Well, that's the exact and, issue with every yeah, like every four player board game ever is like. You know, <laughs> Everyone's <laughs> me all the time, like, I'm not the one in the lead. You should be attacking Frank. He's the yeah, one who's yeah. like, you know, it's like a... And one guy was really good about, you know, being defensive. He wouldn't initiate contact, and he'd kind of try to make his dragon just really tough. And so you knew it was kind of like a waste of time to attack him, and then we're all skirmishing. Sure, Meanwhile, he's right. just... But mm-hmm. I don't know. A lot of that was fun because it was personalities. So there were flaws, but it was it was spiky. I don't know. Yeah. Um, no, all that stuff's fine. It's funny. Like, I think with a lot of... A lot of games, uh, and Civ is like 
like a, a number one candidate for the one number one example for this like mm-hmm. they just have trouble like sticking the ending you know like yeah you could yeah. have lots of these great game mechanics where, like oh mm-hmm. all the stuff going back and forth you're making a choice <laughs> so like you say like do you want to be defensive and focus on just like getting stuff or mm-hmm. like do you want to be more attentive because then they'll change how everyone else reacts to you and like yeah that's super interesting but like at some point you got to tie it up yeah. and sometimes it's just it's not the easiest thing no. to figure out you know like we we also you know the ten minute thing. I mean, it had its problems, but it worked also. It, it didn't overstay its welcome. I think that's the other thing. It was it, and of course, ten was picked because it was ten. It was a nice even number. Yeah. It could have been nine. Could have been twelve. Yeah. Um, but the whole kingdom, like we tuned it such that you know by the end of ten minutes, the kingdom would be very populated. The high level units would be out. The giants and the wizard towers and mm. you know all this stuff. And I think one of the, I guess one of the learnings was people always wanted to keep playing at the end of 10. And so what that manifested as is let's start another game. And I think that the game would have it at 15 or 20, it's too long. You know, I've already lost at minute eight, whatever it is. And I liked that idea that, you know, and of course a a common request was, can you just make a free play mode where there's no time limit? But I feel like there's sometimes a benefit. What does that mean? Like, I just want to, I just want to keep, gathering gold and finding things and yeah. just feel good you know like it was fun like a lot of people played it casually they played it with yeah. their i get i we've gotten we've gotten that question a number of times for off world oh yeah um yeah i just want to i just want to play it forever i just want to enjoy like, the systems and i'm like well nothing things just stop happening yeah like once you get to for us it's like basically about 20 minutes like at that point like all the tech you'll have the all yeah. the patents will be gone yeah. Every, you'll everyone will have two off worlds and like you'll probably have all the text you need and like like the prices will actually start going down because mm-hmm. you'll be oversupplying the market and like the game's not built for that and be like I don't, I just want to I just want to keep playing like, yeah I don't know it's just <laughs> well because because I think what it is they've they've written all that you know it's really fun and so they in their head they're projecting they're extrapolating it's going to be more mm-hmm. and you know sometimes it's like someone asked yesterday at Dark's Dungeon like why don't you let the high level heroes grind in level one dungeons it's like i know it sounds like you want that and it sounds really good but trust me it won't be fun and so i think sometimes denying people denying people the experience where they'll figure out it's not fun you know the map is fully populated nothing new is happening it's just a steady state and you're sitting there for you know on on that um on that note like i think modding would be really cool to let people do that um Mm -hmm. just remember another other parts of the questions of horde there there though single player mode we did make a survival mode Okay. And a what did that mean exactly? Um, it was live as long as you can. So basically, it was special maps that okay. would. So that really does it, fulfill that. Yeah. Right. So and then um, it's funny how like I haven't thought about Horde in a little while and but yeah there was there was survival mode which actually was super fun because you'd and then pretty soon there's wizards tower shooting at every you know and you're just desperately trying to survive and and you know so you there you were judged on just minutes mm-hmm. and then you were given extra time you were given extra score time for how much gold you gathered or something sure then there was a princess rush mode and we have this in multiplayer as well where person ah yeah person the first um Rescue ten princesses wins okay. the game, so that's, that's kind of like your that stars. Chunky thing, that was yeah, 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 yeah. Okay, yeah. there was princess rush mode. It's funny, like we did so many crazy modes yeah. in here. No, that's cool. And, and it's great to have like once you have a system, then you can like really blow it out. With, yeah, like, that's with, with like options. Right? That's what it was fun is you know you're, you're building this modular thing up, and then every time, and then sometimes you drop one small modular thing in, and it makes everything better. And the um, the other mechanic I think that was important for overall, but definitely sometimes in being able to come back was this tribute mechanic, which I don't know if you remember, 
but essentially uh you could fly to the cities or the villages and burn them, but don't burn them down. And oh, you, yeah, yeah, you do yeah. a certain amount of damage basically to make them afraid of you. Yeah. And then they would raise your flag in F- or whatever. They would raise your symbol above their city as basically like Red Dragon. We're terrified of Red Dragon. He's been harassing us. Um, and from that point onward, you're friendly to them. Yeah. And they send you tribute carts of gold. They yeah. just little carts come out of the city and Could go the to other dragons attack the tribute. Yes. Okay. They can cool. attack the tribute and they can also come to the city and try to change it. So there's the city has an internal counter essentially of like, oh, I've had 300 damage from Red Dragon, 150 from Blue Dragon. Mm-hmm. And so Blue Dragon could come and like breathe on it for a while until they're like, okay, Blue Dragon is more terrifying. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and one of the cool things though is the cities build up archers around them that are defenders. All right, and then they'll shoot the other dragons. They'll shoot the other dragons. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And so when you're getting attacked, you can run to a safe city mm-hmm. and sit there. Yeah. And well, then, I, thought, I thought it was a very that was a very strong aspect of horror. It was like all of those systems, mm-hmm. like being used how the economy worked, and like like the, what the stuff that you're talking about. Like, yeah, so you know how all those stuff worked, and you know each of the parts is simple, right? Yeah, but like yeah, you know it's the classic thing, right? Together becomes interesting. Did you did you ever play Raid on Bungling Bay? Yeah, a long time ago. Gosh, I don't remember a lot about it though. Really? Because yeah. there's actually a lot of similarities. Oh, really? Yeah, because oh wait, or am I getting there's there was also Raid over Moscow. Yeah, that's that's very. Different. That was an action game. That's like okay. the sequel, to like Beachhead. No, I I played Raid Over Moscow. Okay. Raid yeah. Over Bungling Bay was was Will Wright's first game. Ah, uh, okay, yeah. And it was a, um, you were flying. You were. I'm so gonna it was refresh a, my memory. Right? Um, you were flying. I'm trying to remember. Was it a helicopter or a, a jet or whatever? But you were you were flying around this island mm-hmm. and you were attacking it and um. Uh, basically trying to get their stuff, but it had it, it had its own economy on the island of like um, there was like factory I think factories and mines oh, cool. and like the mines for the factories and the factory was, would spit out tanks or planes and okay. different types of factories would spit out different types of things which would attack you and um, like uh, I mean you never played it so I remember the name <laughs> did, a lot but it didn't no affect yeah. hard, but like it actually has a lot of similarities with it in the sense that like there's this there's this economy in the background that affects how the game is is going on basically. that's cool and but then there's action and right there's action on yeah. top of that and the the punchline for that story usually is <laughs> that's where SimCity came from oh yeah because he was making this act well, he originally he was making this action game mm-hmm. but he got more interested in all of the, the simulation. economy stuff going on in the background and then eventually like later he made he made SimCity oh that's like, cool I just it just popped my head that like there's actually a lot of parallels that with horror that's like, neat it was really fun it felt like you're playing this playset and I, I recognize right now i really want to do more of that you know when i see games like um prison architect mm-hmm. and you know i love systems and i just really want to get on this playset and it was really fun and on horrid actually i remember it was an interesting experience too because i did push it too far and had to come back i was like oh there's gonna be even more buildings even more mm-hmm. more kingdom things and even more and then i think put a couple things in that actually stripped out because it just you know i've we found the right mix it's like a certain amount of buildings the princess carts the gold carts the giants the wizard towers and how, how could you tell that there was too much when you were playing like it's just uh, people were having like a little bit of trouble of like okay what does what exactly mm-hmm. or um and just from my own, I guess, gut feel, like I felt that, um, yeah, like one thing I remember in particular was I wanted these carriage inns that were like in between the cities. Mm-hmm. And if a cart 
you know, cart passes a carriage and it goes in and out and, and then gets slightly more money and comes back out. And it just felt like what's a carriage in a carriage in like, like oh, a, in. an in carriage. Sorry. Yeah. Okay, yeah. I'm, right, I'm okay. running my words together. <laughs> okay, okay. And it just didn't feel like it really added much yeah, and sure. it cluttered the map. And then, you know, yeah. it just, well, was, there's the general rule, right? Like, you know, unless something, everything you add is kind of damaging the game in mm. a way, right? If it's not carrying its weight from like a, you know, mm-hmm. a, a gameplay perspective. So, um, we did pay off a couple more ideas and one, you know, we did a couple DLCs, um, flame broiled. We did puns. It was like, or like flame broiled sandwich was our one DLC. <laughs> and that was, we did, we did a sand texture pack, uh-huh. you know, or desert. And then, um, Gosh, I, I think we had some, and then we did the dynamite roll, um, which you know we're really proud of ourselves for naming at that moment. Dynamite roll, of course, like a fried sushi roll, but the dynamite roll was there were carts that would come out that had fireworks. Okay, and then uh, you know it was the old exploding barrel trick, but it was kind of neat because you could light the cart. And like, if you breathe too much, oh, it just blow up and would right, kill you. Right. But you could just light the fuses, then fly away, and it would be like. And so other dragons would see it coming. Like if you weren't totally Johnny on the spot, looking at everything, you you could like ambush other dragons with with uh, carts. And then we added a couple more buildings to town, and you know, a couple power ups or something like that. And um, and those those were effective in being able to re-promote the game. And the game was definitely successful. It wasn't like a giant hit, but it was, but it it certainly saved the company for a while and stuff like that. And um, yeah. And then we, we ended up getting talent acquired basically. And so we ended up working on other stuff. And so we never made it back to work on more horde.